0: Hey everyone, it's Tom here, back for another compilation episode of all the old Alf Metallica's organised to album stock. So if you're not familiar with what we do here, basically I go back through the archives, I reassemble all the episodes discussing one particular album, put them in the album's running time order, throw some clips in between, and voila, we've got a three hour piece of content that doesn't take too long to put together. So hopefully this can help distract you. Most importantly, we're in some pretty bleak times at the moment with the, um, with the COVID, with the quarantine, and um, I don't really know what to say on that, to be honest with you. That hasn't been said much more eloquently by, uh, by Sam Harris and other podcasters of note and, of course, uh, leading politicians. So I'm blathering on. Today, we are doing Garage Inc., disc one of Garage Inc., which is Metallica's double disc uh, cover extravaganza. Today, we're just going to do all the songs that they recovered for the first time on that album. So, um, yeah, just before we go through those tracks, follow us at Metallic Pod. Get in touch with Metallica Pod at Ginole.com. If you want to come on the show and discuss something, we're always working on new stuff. Uh, at the moment, I'm working on an episode that's going to look at all of metallica's music as it when it appeared in tv and film and it's quite a few interesting stories especially early on copyright issues that i wasn't really aware of um also gonna have a guest on shortly as well looking at the history of metallica's stage designs throughout all their tours that's gonna be a good one and you know some kind of monster glastonbury there's a lot of stuff on the back burner as well that i'm slowly getting to but i am doing another podcast, like pun it my competitive wordplay game show podcast definitely check that out, I'm having a lot of fun with that so I just want to finally thank all the people that came on. So the first song on Garage Inc. is Free Speech for the Dumb. That was episode 55 with Russell Shostak. Second is It's Electric, which is episode 74 with Jack Chambers. Jack's always a great guest. I mean, is always a great Everyone's always a great guest as well. But um, I mentioned Jack as he was just on recently for the first edition of Mega Histories, which you may have noticed my kind of monolithic excursions into a single topic Metallica-wise. So me and Jack spent almost three hours talking about Jason. Newstead, not really talking about the not being based on justice or he quit the band but focusing on more interesting things, you know, like Jason's forays into art and uh, reality TV and and when he was playing with the Moss Brothers as well you may remember those, that kind of lo-fi, moldy peaches duo uh, that were pretty intriguing. Song 4 is Turn the Page that was episode 147 with Christopher Yerges, shout out Chris all the time Metallic Claws is how Clint and Ethan Dean met at your podcast and uh, yeah, you guys are probably aware that this guy just keeps giving and giving and giving Like in terms of the memorabilia and just his energy in the fandom community is unmatched Alex Finney came on for the fifth song of Gary Jing, which is Die Die My Darling episode 35 uh, Lover Man is next with Sam Wiles that was episode 84, Sam of course is my partner in crime on podcast, we did a Tom Waits podcast here yeah, I've had him on Alf Batallica. Uh, you know he's on Punnett all the time as well he does a Paul McCartney podcast and this has a rare distinction in the Alf Botalica back catalogue as being the only episode I've recorded in person as it were. So every other episode is on Skype with the call recorder. This episode however, because the next day we were going to go see Paul McCartney at the O2 Arena and we actually recorded an episode on Sam's pod where we reviewed the whole concert and there was quite a wild story actually behind that uh, that I have mentioned before where we couldn't get a seat and we had to go basically because Sam wasn't feeling very well, he had vertigo and then this magical uh, <laughs> caretaker came out of the, of the wind and I, I don't really know what went down there but uh, yeah, go back and listen to Beatles with us then so um, that's Sam, that's Loverman, Man, the Nick Cave cover the seventh song is Merciful Fate, the band's five part medley of all their different songs i was supposed to have a guest on this and we were emailing back and forth and ideas and da 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 and then the guest just didn't respond to me and normally you know that kind of annoys me it leaves you in a lurch a little bit like you may be familiar with some of the motorhead songs where i don't really have much to say and i kind of need the guest to bounce off blah, da Blah but this though i actually relish the opportunity to really go granular on my ones so uh yeah that's merciful fate Next up's a really early episode in the run, so this is song 8 on Gary Jenkins Astronomy, Blue Oyster Cult, and Brady Trantham came on for episode 9, then we had Randy Sobel on for Whiskey in a Jar, which is episode 164, so between those two you're really getting the separate polls, Randy of course is from Live on Four Legs, the Pearl Jam live podcast that I just adore, I think it's a terrific show, Um, I went on there uh, discussing the 2006 Reading Festival show that they did, which is the only one that I witnessed, and you know, even though I love, you know, you know, you guys know that I love Metallica, but I'm very harsh on Metallica. I'm very, you know, I can be quite acerbic, someone said on Twitter recently. Quite forthright. And uh, on that Valjean podcast, I kind of slag Room off more than I like them, even though I do really like them. So uh, shout out to Randy. That was a really good episode of Whisk in a Jar. Rick Nashtag came on, always great to speak to Rick, and we got into Tuesday's Gone, the Skinner cover, that was episode 146, and finally, Dave, beloved Dave, D-V-A-E, he came on to discuss The More I See by Discharge, which is Alpha 94. So um, yeah guys, as always, just a quick rambling intro, I hope you're staying safe, I hope you're cleaning your hands, here's Garage Inc. <laughs> track that is by a band called Discharge, who, I've got to be honest, not really familiar with this band until about this morning when I did a bit more research (laughs) Metallica clearly loved them because The More I See is actually a Discharge song as well uh, on on Inc. and just to give you a bit of background on the band, um, the band's sound has been called a grave black oral acid assault, they paved way for an astounding array of politically motivated musically intense and deeply confrontational bands, they were explicitly political and used a revolutionary activist attitude that moved hardcore away from its pub rock origins and towards a dangerous and provocative territory. There's some um, great copy and pasting from Wikipedia there from me. And they're from um, from, they're from <laughs> Stoke-on-Trent, which is actually quite close to where I grew up. I didn't realize they were a UK then. Were you familiar in any way with Discharge?
1: Just like you, man. Just, listen, uh, just going through their Wikipedia before the episode, um, I wanted to... I want to just kind of bone up. And uh, that's fun. You know, that that article is really funny. You know, I'll bet Discharge never put that much thought into, yeah. like, their sound as much as that guy did. But, you know, that's a really great way to put it because um, when I was listening to them, like, I actually – I like the kind of like the Discharge version better than it's, what Metallica did. It's quite different,
0: did. isn't it? I listen back as well, and it's, it's more of its era. The Metallica one's a bit more muscular, whereas I think the Discharge yeah. one's maybe got more character. I was trying to
1: find out if um, if they were in different tunings. I want to say Discharge is going to be more in like a standard tuning. Yeah, uh, but I, I don't really know for sure. I couldn't find I couldn't find that. But uh, Metallica definitely sounds like it's um, you know like drop down like maybe like a drop D, maybe even going down to like C sharp or something. I mean it's it's deep. It's mm. deep and heavy.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: and I love how it just kicks off just with that riff, with that sort of mm-hmm. forward momentum pushing you on, and the the songs pretty brief i think the song's about two and a half minutes you know it, it's a minute 15 before we get any <laughs> vocals and the only vocals we get is the title of the song just repeated right. you know yeah. it's very the- stripped down <laughs> and on
1: the discharge album this is the second to last track on the album that it came out on right so um it's just yeah it's just a really i i like that they chose this song because it's just um you know i was reading this wikipedia article about they were they were tour they you know they released black album load reload all within you know a couple of years and then they were touring like crazy and they just wanted to record something that was like fun and simple and easy for them and i felt like this song was just perfect for them cuz it's just dumb you know like yeah. it is it's just yeah. aggressive and dumb and thrashy and they're just like you know we don't give a shit we're just going to play this song and you know if you don't like it you know go
0: yourself i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's uh it's the antithesis really to reload which came out the year before and it totally it's, it's yeah heavy. totally you know it's really heavy it has a real good uh you know driving power to it we get a guitar solo a long guitar solo, which is which is exactly the same as a discharge song i was going back i was thinking maybe they've thrown that in there but no kirk is sort of i mean how would you describe this solo it's kind of justice-esque isn't it very squealy very erratic
1: it is i i want to say that like There wasn't a whole lot of thought put into it, and I think they did that on purpose. I think it was just noodly, squealy, like you said. Um, I'll bet that, I mean, honestly, I'll bet they recorded this song in two hours, if that. I mean, it was just put down to tape, and they were just like, all right, next. And it's just, I think that's what the song is supposed to be. Like, it's just supposed to be dumb. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah,
1: Dumb, loud, Kirk Kirk didn't. i doubt kirk like wrote something for it you know
0: no 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 yeah it feels almost like it could have just been done in in one take you know james wouldn't have to learn the lyrics mm-hmm. for example um you know they're right there in front of him and it, it's got this pulse to it haven't the drums sound excellent and there's also this thing that i don't know if you heard um it's more detectable with headphones kind of like an almost fizzy buzz kind of uh, below the frequency it's kind of hard to put a finger on but it gives it a, a bit more sense of an unease there for me yeah totally
1: um it might be like a synth pad or something. I was yeah. trying to find out how they you know, what gear they used. I, I was able to find out what guitar he used, but that was about mm. it. I, I'll bet it was some sort of synth pad or, or, or maybe like a, a fuzz on the bass. It's, yeah, it's kind, it's kind of hard to describe. But yeah, that's that's what it's sep- it, That's what makes that song separate from the original song because the original song, like they obviously didn't think that hard about it.
0: No, no, and yeah. the the drums are a lot different in the original discharge version yeah. as well. They're a lot more <clears throat> frantic, a lot busier, and actually on the Wikipedia article, yeah, icon, I love,
1: I love that.
0: Yeah, the drums sound great on the original, and apparently the musical genre of D-beat, which I'm not aware of, is named after mm-hmm. discharge and the band's distinctive drumbeat. Which is is, Mm -hmm. pretty crazy. And this song, I should say, is from 1982. It was on their album, Hear Nothing, Mm -hmm. See Nothing, Say Nothing. And, um, I mean, let's talk about the lyric, which is the only thing we can talk about. Free speech for the dumb. There's many different, you know, definitions, interpretations of what this means. What's your reading of this phrase? I think I love its simplicity.
1: And uh, I think the era that it came out in and whatever was going on politically at the time, because they were a super political band, um, they were just fighting back. And this song, with its simple message, that was what they were trying to get across. They just they didn't want any, you know, it wasn't poetry. They weren't trying to put in any sort of like twist on the words, hidden meaning or anything. It was just like you know, we're here, we're dumb, and we have the right to fucking say whatever we want, so... Yeah. um, And it was a call to its, you know, its friends and, like, its fans and, like, free speech for us, like, we're dumb, you yeah. know, like... <laughs> Um, That's kind of what I got out of it. Yeah,
0: definitely. There is that element that free speech is for everyone, you know, high and low speech. I guess there's also Mm -hmm. the idea that perhaps free speech is only for the dumb. And if you're just saying stupid shit, no one cares. But if you're saying politically incisive shit or Mm -hmm. anarchic research shit, people maybe don't want to give you free speech. And then Mm -hmm. I also had it as... Maybe this is the English literature student in me reading a bit too far into it. I also had it as almost like a pun, as in, you know, being dumb is... Medically being dumb is being unable to speak. So it's like almost Mm. a cruel thing to say, like, free speech for the dumb, you know? Wow. I did, I did not even think of that. Let's man. Go, let's a, go. Let's go. Uh, let's. The uni more. years were not wasted for this <laughs> for, for this for this moment. But yeah, what, what's important is it, it gets barked throughout the song, and it's very punk in the sense where the song's called this, all you're gonna hear is this. You know, everything's working towards this whole piece. And James, I think his vocal delivery, love it. I think it sounds so so wrenched. He gives the song like its only
1: melody. You know, when mm-hmm. he the last time he says free speech, and he kind of drags it on at the end. It's Really, the only time you get any sort of vocal melody, and that does not happen in the original song. So it's kind of funny he like, maybe instinctively had to do that. Um, but yeah. you know their songs are so. I mean, I'll you know trying to put myself in their perspective. They write such incredibly complicated music. I'll bet this was just they just wanted to do something dumb. And you know this song I'm sure was big influence on them, and uh, it was it was just perfect. You know, it was just perfect for them.
0: Yeah, it's quite freshy it's quite in of itself, the song, even the Discharge version. The drums take it in a slightly different direction uh, musically. But yeah, it does have that element mm. to it. And it sort of just has James singing that, and then a solo sort of takes us out. And this riff is just continuing uh, with its onward clatter. And and Discharge are one of those bands, you know, um, like a Sabbath, like a budgie, that are important to a lot of bands that came afterwards. So not only did obviously Metallica cover them, mm-hmm. uh, Anthrax covered them. They covered a song called Protest and survive on Attack of the Killer Bees. Sepultura have covered quite a few of their songs. Machine Head also have covered some of their tracks. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, maybe maybe in the future someone needs to start a Discharge podcast. This is quite an important band.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. I yeah. don't know what the market is for that, but <laughs> that would be probably probably very few. Yeah, hang on. Let's
0: go. On, let's go. On be a, short, a They have short thirty-two thousand monthly listeners. Discharge, which is which is very low. Really, but they're one of these yeah. bands, you know. A lot of bands on the Garage era, like, you know, they just who, who the fuck are they? But like Budgie, for example, but they're a really, right. really cool band as well. But, uh, but yeah, there's not too much to say on this track, really. There's the riff, there's the solo, there's the very brief lyrics that can be interpreted in many ways. But all in all, I think Metallica, you know, chose this as an opener because of that reason because there's not much there, but it gets you geared up, gets you interested, gets you excited.
1: Absolutely. And it gets you geared up for uh, the next track. It's electric. And it it really works perfectly. I mean, they didn't do anything like they didn't start with anything like proggy, epic, um, you know, how they start off like master puppets and all that kind of stuff. It's just here it is loud, dumb. This is the stuff that got us into music. And uh, um, that's just it's a it's just different, you know, and that's what makes Metallica great is they just switch it up on you and they don't give a shit like they just do what I, they just do what they want and it's unapologetic and I think that's what makes it more fun the drums on on the original song I like a lot more than what Lars and I yeah. love Lars Arwick, but the drums on the original song are man you know like that the original version of the song like I listened to it like six times today and I'm like I really like this like yeah. I can imagine myself you know back in high school like in my angsty you know teenage days (laughs) like really getting into that
0: yeah yeah me too i think i'm gonna listen to hear nothing see nothing say nothing actually Um, Mm -hmm. i I quite like discharge's vibe actually and i'm sure there's loads of like you know early punk purists who are screaming at this but you don't know discharge like i'm sorry i don't know who discharge (laughs) are but you know i should have been on this podcast (laughs)
2: yeah (laughs) i'm (laughs) gonna push it through
0: anyway it's electric um this is the second song of garage inc and you know in very in many ways it's kind of a meat and potatoes rocker it's not reinventing the wheel in any way but it's quite an enjoyable romp no
3: absolutely yeah i think you summed it up very well that it is meat and potatoes this is your your standard classic like late seventies yeah. rock song. Mm-hmm. This is the new wave of British heavy metal at its finest. I think yes. it was released in like 1980, but, um, I know that, have you seen the live performance? I hit? have, I have. Yeah. Yeah. Sean and Brian did with Metallica the one time it's ever been played yeah. live. And, uh, Sean Harris is like, yeah, we wrote it in Brian's bedroom in like 10 minutes. And it's like, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's three riffs and a guitar solo, and that's and that's all
0: you need. Like, It yeah. is, it is. And we begin a Budgie-esque, that descending classic rock. Just going down the scale, no frills really, into the main riff, which I can't really tell you what it is because it's just sort of open chords and a bit of an ending, you know what I mean? It's not very i don't know melodic or anthemic, but it's still successful
3: weirdly enough it's in f sharp in if you're in standard tuning it's played on uh you can tell i'm going to be a music nerd for this Uh, (laughs) on the second fret of the of the Uh e-string and i was like ah because i I tried to work it out like in in preparation for the show like i wonder what key that song is in because mostly metallica they're they're chugging on that e-string a lot of Mm -hmm. the time and it'll be in e-flat if they're you know in the later years and stuff like that but some of the covers are in weird keys and things James and, and the guys aren't used to performing and James isn't used to singing. I was like, interesting. This is in... So I guess they play it in F because they're a half... They're a semitone tuned down mm-hmm. playing on the second fret of the E string. There's some music nerdish for you, <laughs> But yeah, so it, it's it's a weird riff. And then the verses are just like two chords occasionally yeah,
0: it's very like yeah. almost like acdc style exactly what i've got in my notes yeah, just, durna, durna. it's just the space yeah. between there's nothing happening at all and it just allows james to sort of occupy that space have you listened to the original i have yes yeah, um, yeah. I mean it's very much a product of its time production wise the guitars sound thinner than James's arms on the Death Magnetic tour but <laughs> I, I
4: actually I,
0: I think I might prefer the original vocal performance Re- it's a, it's really a, yeah um, it, uh, the reason why I was thinking this I sort of listened to it and I was a bit like mm, whatever but the top comment on the actual original that I found on YouTube is obviously from a diehard Diamondhead fan it's like imagine this song being played slightly heavier with bad vocals and there's the Metallica version oh <laughs> I was intrigued by that. I thought uh, so listen and listen. And it's a bit more soulful, the original. Um there's a bit it's a bit more inventive I suppose in terms of his vamping but, but only by like a margin I'm not saying like the James version is terrible or anything. I think the James version sounds great and James gets to exercise his lungs quite a bit especially on the chorus very long lines there
3: yeah the the word electric yeah, is yeah, really yeah. long when he does it like really <laughs> holds that line and you've got plenty of the, the 90s James Hetfield whoa and yeah, yeah, yeah. and all <laughs> that kind of stuff that he always does any given opportunity basically right. <laughs> uh, I wonder if that is an influence like this song like james was like james oh yeah i could do loads of yeahs and woes mm-hmm. in every song that would be a great idea <laughs> i mean it's <laughs> that down to listen to too much diamond head at one yeah, point but yeah. it, it's interesting you mentioned the original is is kind of a better version because as soon as i mentioned it some friends of mine they were like oh megadeth version's much better i'm like oh what and megadeth did a live version of this uh-huh. with again sean harris joined them on stage i think oh, it was wow. in like the very early 90s possibly like 1990 and it's in it's on some megadeth like hidden treasures mm. kind of yeah, disc yeah, yeah, or something yeah. some, like that yeah. that nobody's ever heard of apart yeah. from hardcore megadeth fans mm-hmm. and surprise surprise megadeth play it like one and a half times faster than every other band in the world <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah i mean it's, it's a fine version and i'm i can't stand dave mustaine's singing voice i think he's a fantastic guitar player yeah but i'm glad that it was sean harris singing and If anything, that's probably the best version of the song. So if you like the original vocals, Tom, I definitely recommend going and checking out the slightly too fast version from Megatev. Okay, yeah, I definitely will peruse that. Because, I mean, Sean
0: Harris's vocals on the live version of the anniversary shows, a little lacking, right?
3: Yeah, they were a bit wobbly. Yeah. I, I assume... The The Diamond Head guys are slightly older than Metallica guy, so yeah. he must have been about 60-ish when he was doing that. So I guess that that's kind of what happens. He was kind of going the Dio route of hitting those kind of like low, warbling notes, but not mm. quite pulling it off in the same way that Ronnie James could uh, no. really kind of rock even into his later years.
0: No, and uh, lyrically, you know, we're on familiar territory, as say, hit the lights, it's kind of that wish fulfillment, I'm going to be a rock star one day sort of thing.
3: Absolutely, yeah. I think this is like the... You said this was the meat and potatoes. This is like the less poetic version of Turn the Page, mm. another Garage Inc. song where, like, that's really poetic and the the echoes of the amplifiers and the, the woman you knew the night before and all that kind of stuff, and it's very romanticized. And this is just like, I'm going to make a million dollars. I'm yep. going to play a bunch of blues. Yeah. yeah, like... <laughs> yeah. Blow, blow my honey jar. Yeah, blow make a stand. Yeah. What a weird lyric, I don't, blow yeah. my honey jar. <laughs> I assume that's... <laughs> like, literal, in that some blues bands would have, like, a little, like jar player like i yeah, guess that's literal
0: maybe or just like you who knows yeah i i always talk about sort of your funds i guess sort of spending all you can to sort of oh that's make true this a reality yeah money. Yeah. Blow, your, blow your you but yeah. I, yeah, I always like i stop on red but leave on amber so it's like you're not really an outlaw you, we're not we're not in motley crew territory <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean you don't, you don't go green so you're a slight scoff law but it's just danger paves my way is quite a clumsy lyric as well but oh, you know oh absolutely um, it's a bit of a throwback. It always—I always think of Diamondhead because it's the first third time we discussed them. I'm from Stourbridge, I'm not sure where you're from in the UK, but quite near where I grew up in Birmingham. I used to go to swimming lessons in Stourbridge, so I sort of associated <laughs> the leisure centre with Diamond mentally. Was with, um, with your
3: swimming instructor Brian Tap? It may have jump. been actually.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he did advise me to take no electronics in the pool, so that was, ah, uh, there you
3: go, Tom. So, don't take that in the pool; it's electric. <laughs> it's electric. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah the song structurally has all the hallmarks of this sort of music you know the the solo's fine from Kirk actually i think it's quite enjoyable i love when the solo the, the the lead line descends and the chords descend underneath it's a nice effect
3: that's that's the best bit of that solo for me for yeah. sure i totally agree yeah, yeah it, I, I really like when I know you bring this up quite a lot, and a uh, plenty of other Metallica podcast people have as well. They're like, get out of his Kirkisms for a second, and yeah. slightly less wire, slightly less open string hammer on hammer off type stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like, can you just, yeah, I oh, would just do a descending line of the top of descending chords. That's a nice little kind of melodic. It weaves in very nicely harmonically and stuff. And yeah, that that kind of makes the solo for me. I, I'm glad you mentioned it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he hangs on on it. <laughs> sort of hangs on this discordant note just beforehand but the descending line is from the diamond head song i should say that's not something that metallica threw into the mix the solos are different and i think kirk's solo is a bit better because that was sort of that 70s era where a guitar solo was just sort of play notes high up It wasn't really <laughs> much structure really it was just as long as it was in a scale and within key and then we have again kind of ACDC territory where we just pull back to the bass to the drums to James singing over the top what do you think of this final movement
3: I really like that again being a bass player it's always nice to mm-hmm. hear a bit of bass in the background there and I'm a huge Jason Newstead fan mm-hmm. uh, and he's kind, of, he's kind of my one of my biggest influences as a bass player especially like performing live I think he contributed so much to the, to the live atmosphere of Metallica oh, yeah. shows, but that I, I almost when it when it just leaves dr- Lars's drums, I almost think like are they about to do injustice? It's like doom, 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 da 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 da, 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 da and like it's suddenly gonna kick into that. It's like. Just a few more Tom hits, and you're going to be in a metallic song. There, I can see the influence here. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's very, very obvious. And then again, kind of like turn the page, and those other kind of classic rock songs. Just going down to just the bass and the mm-hmm. drums and the vocals for the last verse is, like you said, meat and potatoes. It's yeah. classic rock song songwriting it Mm -hmm. is it worked a million times before and it'll work a million times again I suppose (laughs) that's it
0: that's it yeah it's it's wham bam it's fast it's compact it's in and out I will say that I love the tone on the whole album of Gary Jing and I think this is no different I think it just has a nice kind of uh, a crunchiness a sort of post has a bit more blood in it than load and reload and, you know, the band do sound excellent, and I opened it up uh, on the Twitter, as I always do, at MetallicaPod, to see what people think of this song, got a little bit of fever there, please follow us there as well, if you you enjoy the show, Uh, got... A message from uh, Rye from Sabbath Bloody Podcast. As always, I want to say, everyone go listen to that podcast. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, hopefully I'm going to guest on there soon to do a Metallica influence of Black Sabbath sort of idea. I think he did something on Ozzy recently, on Ozzy's solo career. And No More Tears. Have you listened to that album, by the way, Jack, by Ozzy? No absolutely, more tears. yeah. What I'm, a good I'm a big Ozzy guy. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, I think my first interaction with that album was uh, Hellraiser. was on San Andreas, I think. So that's how I <laughs> yeah, how yeah. and I always thought the chorus that the chorus is Hellraiser for some reason to me it was and I'm lazy. I d just
2: you mishear <laughs> these lyrics
0: for whatever reason. It would fit in the Aussie mythos, I suppose, his uh, his ennui. But um yeah, Rye Sabrine Podcast again subscribed saying, Outstanding cover, the bread fan of Gary Jink Disc One. They should have opened the mm. album with it instead of free speech, in my opinion. So much raw energy. It deserves a spot in the live set. Het sounds great on the long chorus holes, and the rhythm section only stripped only stripped down is a butte. Uh, Pim Jickens yeah, saying amazing cover better than the original Dan saying also that he loves this cover uh, Joseph Haddock, there he is again saying unusually positive, nice and upbeat a lovely addition to Garage Inc and then finally Kevin Van Damme, good friend of the show saying awesome cover, James's vocals are great only been played once in 2011 and I think they should pull it out again, hopefully in Nashville at least Lars likes it, it's the name of his show and of course it is the name of his show we haven't touched on that yet uh, an interesting choice by the Dane
3: yeah, I thought that was a weird choice. Like, like I said, I was doing a bit of research for this, and I was like, oh, well, yeah, we're, we're coming to the last, as you said, Tom, the last of the three Diamond Head covers. And mm-hmm. I was like, in a lot of ways, it's the least interesting. I think it's the least kind of, Yeah. Um, obviously, Am I Evil is the song. It's oh, yeah. even more, made possibly more of a Metallica song now than it is a Diamond Head song. Yeah. And Helpless yeah. has got a real kind of high energy to it mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And then this is like, oh, yeah, and the other one, like the the, the standard rocker. And then Lars names his podcast after it. Like, that's weird. Mm. And apparently it's his favorite Diamond Head song. That's the reason behind it. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. That's probably why they covered it in the first place. And yeah, yeah. The Diamond Head live album from like the 90s is also called It's Electric. Yeah. So I think it might be one of their kind of their favorites or one of their big hits from back in the day as well. So it's kind of clearly resonate with Lars and and resonate with Diamond Head fans as well makes sense yeah I'm just on their Spotify they've
0: got 65 month thousand monthly streams which isn't bad you know for a band of that ilk. obviously they've got that sort of Metallica uh backwash leading in Am I Evil of course is the most played and then price, most price. of them seems to be off this around um it's electric, not breaking the top 10, but that doesn't really mean really? anything. No, no, not 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 breaking the top 10 most streamed. But, you know, again, a lot of this stuff is on CD or vinyl or whatever on 8-track, so it's not going into that streamer sphere. Know. But uh, have How, you how have many you hardcore Head fans are listening to Spotify? <laughs> no. uh, yeah, well, at least 65,000. But, but, yeah, no, I can't imagine. <laughs> Apparently they're playing at the New Cross Inn soon for an all-metal weekender. So, uh, yeah, shout they, out to Diamondhead. It's still going.
3: They played in my hometown of Norwich fairly recently, oh. funnily enough. Yeah, wow. yeah
0: did you attend i did yeah oh
3: you did oh how were they yeah really good yeah kind of like uh i don't know it it felt like they had modernized their sound a little bit and like the the production worked the mix was really good live and it worked really well live and like you said the the guitar tone on a lot of the stuff in the 70s is so thin Mm. having it kind of live and filled out like that was really really good and yeah did they do? Did Life they do all three? Like, all three metallic ones? They did. Absolutely, yeah. they did. <laughs> of course, they did. Yeah. I bet it's made them a good watch, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. And the, the live intro. Um, I don't know who the singer uh, is at the time, but he was, uh, "Are you evil?" And everybody's like, "Yeah." He's like, "No." Are you evil? Because I am evil. I'm like, "Wait, no." Uh, am I evil? Like... He <laughs> goes back and forth. Oh, that was a nice little touch and a yep. little intro to. Uh, their, their biggest song it was a nice little touch but yeah uh, me and my band we, we applied to be the support slot for them here okay. and they are like no they're playing like a two and a half hour show of all of their songs I'm like oh, damn it like, they, mm. they didn't have a support so they just, okay. they just played the whole thing by themselves kind of thing almost in a Metallica style back in the day where they do like three and a half hour shows yeah <laughs>
0: When I was making the notes for this episode, I was kind of tracing it back to my experiences with Savva, particularly Savva Bloody um, Podcast. I always call it Savva Bloody Podcast (laughs) now. Yeah, that's going to happen. I do it myself. That is some smart smart branding. But I remember being, (laughs) this would have been been 14, and we went on holiday to Canada, went on this big driving holiday, and I bought three CDs at the start of the holiday. I bought Van Halen's 5150. Deep Purple's Machine Head and Sabbath Bloody Sabbath actually oh, and became really well acquainted with those records and then got into Garage Inc. subsequently from that, maybe the same summer, maybe a little bit after and I remember Sabra Cadabra jumping out at me and yeah. just kind of, you know, knowing this song. I, mean, I didn't know who the hell Budgie were, I didn't know who Nick Kate, you know what I mean? Like, right, these yeah. were a little bit above my pay grade at the time. Hmm. So just being familiar with those and being excited and I almost have the, I weirdly have a memory of being on the school bus and listening to it. I don't know why, I if any Song. but for me <laughs> it's just that riff and you know the whole feel of the song you'll notice better than me but in the pantheon of like sabbath sabbathy songs it's very funky isn't it it's very very it is. It's, uh, you're talking about sabbacadabra
5: itself Sa- right? we gotta it. clear up that there are two songs in here but yeah cadaver yeah. has got kind of like a almost like a honky-tonk kind of vibe to it. Yeah. Feels very, like... it
2: feels
0: very
5: rainbow-esque oh yeah okay i could see that for sure yeah yeah, it's got, like, a bit of, the, like, an older kind of vibe to it, like, older than 70s, you know? like mm-hmm. To me, it's kind of got, like, a saloon bar kind of feel, you know? Totally. like You got um, Rick Wakeman plays keys on, yes. on actual recording, and that's the only song that he plays on. He's from, he's from Yes. <laughs> yeah, he is from Yes. is
2: from
0: Yes. <laughs> yes. And, uh, I mean, yeah, esteemed prog pianist.
5: Yeah, yeah, but Huge he doesn't really play a proggy album. part. I mean, it's very, like, to me, it sounds like kind of honky-tonk you know Appar- like bar music apparently you know it was of-
0: paid in beer according to a youtube comment. <laughs> maybe that's why it's who knows like, yeah. oh, music. <laughs> and uh and the youtube comment also said Kadabra" is like aramaic for like old magic or so i don't know if you know any history about the song itself sabbath wise i actually i came across somebody saying that yeah was it old magic or strange magic something is- like that would make sense something. yeah there is this kind of in kind of vibe to it you definitely feel like you're being put under a spell Yeah, yeah. I thought it was just a pun on, like, abracadabra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I didn't read into it too deep,
2: but...
0: <laughs> and then, you know, so getting into the Metallica version then uh, You know, we begin with the riff itself coming in And it is irresistible, it is tantalising Lars has some shakers in the corner The, the second <laughs> guitar comes in on the top The bass, you know, all trundles in For me though, the thing that I love about this song Is how it becomes a little looser in the second part and The wow, That bend as well And then it all comes back together into the riff It's just really exciting yeah, it is. And
5: the, uh, you got to give it up for Lars on this one. I mean, he really catches kind of what Bill Ward does as a drummer, which is more of a percussionist than a drummer. He always says that. I'm a percussionist, right. not a drummer. That's Bill Ward that says that. Mm-hmm. And I find that Lars, like the tom work he does in there is great. And I think that's what you're feeling when that's kind of opening up, even when that riff's playing. And then, of course, there's like the Bob Rock production on this, right? So you got the James in one ear, Kirk in the other. And, like, Kirk must have just got a big raging heart on when he heard they were covering stuff from this album because all the wah.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly, yeah. <laughs> it really is his wheelhouse. And, you know, yeah. vo- vocally, perhaps, it's. Like, I'm sure this is a song that James sung in the Mirror uh, before <laughs> Leather Charm and whatever. And God right. bless him, he tries to hit the notes. And I'm not saying he does a bad job of it, but, yeah. you, you know, something out of this world, like, he kind of... He, there's a little bit of like that kind of kill all warble to him where he's trying to hit because yeah. Ozzy does sing deceptively high on this song. He does. Yeah. Like
5: Ozzy has got a certain range that's it's, it's natural for Ozzy, I think. Mm-hmm. And, but it's hard for people to sing his songs. I mean, even um, like when Sabbath progressed and got different singers, it was hard to do justice to those Ozzy songs. Yeah. Like Dio kind of takes the piss out of him a little bit. but right, <laughs> But, you know, like even getting into Tony Martin and stuff like that, like when they sing the, the Aussie songs, there's just, there's some magic to his voice that mm-hmm. can't be captured. I kind of like the fact that James kind of owns it and makes it his own. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, definitely. And the song has a lot of momentum as well in the riffs, but then it also contracts and relaxes, you know, the someone and need me, the song slows down, the tides recede somewhat, and then we fire back in with the main riff. I mean, this isn't your typical kind sort of doomy stoner sabbath song like metallica kind of picked a bit of a wild card here i think with the cover
5: they did and that's great like you know it's pretty much a given that when they're gonna do a big cover album like this they're gonna throw a sabbath song yeah. in there but uh, it's, it's great that they did kind of a deep cut especially back when this was released i mean sabbath Bloody sabbath has gained kind of notoriety, notoriety as like a fucking cult classic now mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, like I said, going back to how you were talking about how you picked up this as one of your three CDs when you were in Canada. Yeah. I this I think this was the only Sabbath CD that I had, like a, an actual copy of, and I bought it at a U store again. Um, but it's, it's funny how like, um, you, you'd expect them to do something like War Pigs or. Yeah something off paranoid psycho
0: noir or something like yeah, yeah. yeah oh, so so super noir sorry super noir yeah
5: super noir psycho that just flew over my head I was like yeah. I, don't know. I thought you were talk- I thought you were talking about the the psychoman or whatever yeah just oh, it's some rare B-side if you haven't heard yeah. of it you're not a true Sabbath <laughs> I fan you know? psycho yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> but anyway like yeah it's just like yeah it's not the expected one you know No no absolutely not and you know talking about not the expected It morphs into a nub of Sabbath song in the middle. Uh, Well, it morphs into National Acrobat, which is, you know, again, off Sabbath, right? That's off the same record. Um, Yeah, it is the second track, and then Sabra Kadabra is the fourth track. So it becomes a completely different song. And I have no clue why they don't acknowledge it in the title. It doesn't make any sense. It's not like they play a little bit of it, they play like two minutes of National Acrobat. They sing (laughs) verses from it. It's like, I mean, you did a song called Merciful Fate, we had five Merciful Fate songs in it. You might yeah. as well call this song Black Sabbath or something. I don't. I don't Black really Sabbath know. Yeah, either, Black right? Sabbath medley or or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, bit bit odd, isn't it?
5: It is a bit odd, but it's it's funny because I used to think when I heard this, comparing to the actual versions, that they just didn't want to do the kind of funky, weird uh, Rick Wakeman thing because yeah. it, it's a little less heavy, to sure. say, right? And so they they banged into another riff, but but the way that they transition is fantastic. Mm. I mean, Lars again. It really just leads this right like the the way he just he commands the band through this journey and almost like more so than James and those guys like, like Lars carries both these songs being t- together and it just sounds like one song almost
0: yeah you know? do- yeah it is completely seamless you're right and it, it makes me think that if Black Sabbath, do they do medleys on stage at all do they ever done that oh yeah oh yeah. for sure they do yeah yeah and it's usually the better
5: songs too <laughs> super knot. they'll always do like super knot into like a big drum solo and nice. they come out of that and play they'll play like the sabbath Police sabbath breakdown mm-hmm. and yeah there's usually a little section and it's usually around where the guitar solos and the drum solos are you know when they go off wanking and stuff but they throw in the riffs from the from the good songs there
0: and, and national acrobat feels a bit more in that traditional sabbath vein i mean the lyrics in particular i am the world that hides the universal secret of all time I mean, come on. That is, that is
5: geezer.
2: Like,
0: yeah.
5: It's just a, yeah, it's a straight up geezer LSD trip. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because when Ozzy was asked about what the lyrics were about and everything, he said it was about wanking, <laughs> wanking into a
0: handkerchief or something Des- like well, that. Well,
5: destruction but of the is, empty
0: uh, spaces. I can kind of see what he means. Like, Yeah,
5: trapped inside my embryonic in cell. Yeah. It is actually about, like, um, I, from what I can gather, I mean, I probably need to drop some acid and really right, right. to really see what he's thinking, but it's about, like, how the sperms that didn't make it to the egg and like they still have these souls and does does life really end when it's there? Like, it's like very like, you know, Mm -hmm. microscopic.
0: Do you see see any (laughs) similarity between the national acrobat riff and the fade to black bridge riff? Quite a lot of people say they've got a lot of DNA.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's tons of Sabbath riffs that are more direct than that. I find like fairies Wear boots does like the right the, um, for the bell tolls. That na 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 It's like yeah, straight yeah yeah upstairs. But yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. And you know, especially thinking about this as like 1998 Metallica wanting to cover this, it's got all that swagger that in the riff, you know. And like Iommi's riffs, just are full of swagger.
0: I mean, I mean, it's kind of in the riff Lord Championships at the end of time. It's going to be Iommi and Hetfield, really, isn't it? At the top <laughs> tag,
5: It is, yeah. Like, Iommi's got it on the vibrato, I think, but. Yeah, Uh, like Heffield's right hand is just untouchable, right? Yeah, there you go. They both have the best right hand because he's a lefty. So yeah, that's
0: true. That's true. (laughs) I mean, I I don't even know who else would be up there. I maybe Tom Morello. I don't consider him on that league, but he has written a fuck ton of great riffs. Like,
5: oh yeah, for sure. I mean, for what he did with the guitar, like he just he changed the game for sure. But uh, I'm always like, that's cool that you mentioned Tom Morello, though, because you're not going the mom scene or. That kind of like well, he's not really a I, you know, riffer,
0: no, he, but yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't really
5: the, like yeah. those showy kind of guys that get paraded as like the best guitarist I mean, there's a whole other level to guitar that is like the songwriting and the composition. Hatfield mm-hmm. and Iomi are just top of that
6: game for sure. the of the amplifiers ringing in your head.
7: Smoked the day's last cigarette, remembering what she
6: said, what she
0: said. This is one of the rare occasions with a cover song by Metallica where the original artist is arguably just as big in some circles like certainly in terms of legendary status bob Seeger, you know we're not talking about a discharge or a diamond head here we're talking about someone who sold you know tens of millions of records tons of legendary songs was inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame by kid rock nonetheless in 2004 and you know this guy is endlessly celebrated and and still playing from what i gather on kind of his farewell tour currently is um yep. 74 yep. Are,
8: are you much of a bob Seeger fan you know, I haven't I haven't dipped into his catalog a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously through Turn the Page, I became aware of of Seeger, and I've dipped into it a little bit. Um, he definitely has a a pretty big cult following in, oh, yeah. in the states. Uh, I know a lot of people that are really huge into him. I think I might be a bit of a generation kind of kind of removed from uh, being into that that type of music a little bit, but. Um, there's no doubt his impact and influence on on music is huge. Yeah, and
0: it's it's interesting actually because I found this interview. I'm not sure exactly when it's from. I mean, I just kind of found it online. Apparently, it's from uh, Guitar World. It's with Hepfield. It's called 60 minutes with James Hetfield. and basically, he's on the bus and he's asked to list. I'm guessing this must be about early, like kind of late '80s, mid '80s, um, to list albums that he's just listening to um, on the tour bus. And he names Bob Seger's greatest hits. And he says, I fucking hate Bob Seger, but that song is great, um, Turn the Page. Okay, I don't really hate him, but he was one of the guys I'd hear on the radio all the time polluting my ears with Get Your Records Off The Shelf, that really annoyed me. And, you know, you talk about generational things there. Like, Seger, to a lot of fans, probably quite surprising. A bit, of a, a bit of a stuffy old man, you know, in certain ways. Like, a bit confusing.
8: You know, it's interesting, too, because I'm not familiar with that interview, because mm-hmm. I even know when, as far as even Turn the Page coming up, uh, from from what I'm aware of, that was almost accredited to to Lars hearing it on the radio. And, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Hey, on vocals on this would be outstanding. You know, mm-hmm. so that I think that's kind of a that's a inter- interesting find there.
0: Yeah, I think it might be a different Bob Seger song he's maybe talking about, um, maybe, yeah. maybe maybe Wake Up there. But but still, it's cool to hear him talk about Bob Seger at that period. And for myself, yeah, not too familiar. Like, one of the things that I used when I was really getting into music, um, kind of like 2007, and seven, eight or whatever, Last FM. Did you ever use that website? No, no. So it kind of is defunct now. It still exists, but not in its it's greatness of that time so essentially what it would do was it would scrobble your music so it was a verb that meant read your iPod when you plugged it in and it would say okay listen to like you know Stone Temple Pilots of Thousand signs which would never happen on my watch but you know I don't know why, <laughs> I don't know why that example leapt out of my mind very Freudian, but you know it'll learn what you like and then suggest stuff and I found so many good people through the websites everyone did it was such a good website and I'd be listening to obviously a lot of uh, you know Tom Waits and say Tom Petty and you know that kind of stuff um, Government Mule and uh, MC Five, and you know Sega would always come up, but I just never really clicked on the guy. You know what I mean? And it's like this yep. song as a whole is maybe a macrocosm for that thought process because I, I, I enjoy the song, like I respect the song. It's very well made. It just, it just doesn't click with me. I'm afraid. I, 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 I could, I could not honestly wholeheartedly say I enjoy the song rather than I respect and understand the song.
8: Yeah, as far as turn the page, as far as turn the page. Yeah, um, I like his version. I, I, you know, it's it's definitely more stripped back version compared to to what Metallica ended up covering. Mm. Um, you know, and I think they two have two different kind. Of, like I can't, I cannot separate the Metallica version from the music video, yeah. but the, you know, so they kind of tell two different tales in my head, where Sears you know side is more you know it's a it's about him and his his experience on the road you know and then when metallica took it on and it transitions to this other story but now you know post saint anger post some kind of monster you can almost reconnect metallica and these lyrics and what they've gone through and what james has gone through almost back to you know the original connotation from what seer wrote Mm
0: mm-hmm yeah, and, and the video plays that idea brilliantly, but the chorus is, here I am. You know, every chorus deep down is kind of saying that sentiment, you know, but here it is, just on the road again, and it is kind of this classic kind of travailing track through a lot of, you know, a lot of kind of standard roadisms, countryisms, but really well written. I think the lyrics throughout this track are succinct and evocative and clever.
8: Yeah, I mean, they they do what most great songs do, and it tells a story. You know, you can you can picture it in your head without music videos without anything else aside you know you can everything that he's talking about you can picture this in your head and play it through your mind and i think all great songs do that
0: yeah and it just kind of goes beyond like it casts a lot of pallor on sort of hetfield's uh stuff sometimes where it just doesn't kind of make sense it doesn't have a resonance but i love how you can listen to the engine moaning out this one note song that's
8: beautiful oh yes yeah absolutely
0: so you know, a lot of, again, a lot of people talk about Hepworth as a great lyricist. I don't think he's very—he's capable of conjuring something quite like that. Not that that's—you have to write that way to be a great lyricist, and you have, that has to be on your yardstick. But um, it's great to hear his voice on that track, tackling lines like that and kind of just uh, evoking ideas in a very kind of clear uh, way. Um, his yeah. his singing throughout is rightly celebrated.
8: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I you know, even going back to your your last comment there, I mean. You know, we're so used to, you know, a lot of Hetfield's lyrics have um they're left to a lot of interpretation, right? Mm-hmm. They're very Love very is a full out of word. Ways, yeah. you know, but this is a very a very literal lyric yeah. uh in this song. So having James be able to sing something like that, that's a very literal, very storytelling type type of lyric, I think, really makes it makes it unique. But uh, you know, James is the, the tones he uses. Um just the the groove. This is the, just they just a the flavor that mm-hmm. that just suits his vocal style yeah. so good on this. You know, I think a lot of people, at least in the states, have always wondered. You know, how they think you know James making some sort of a of a old school type country type record or something like that would be really really good. I think mm. this is a little bit of a little bit of a glimpse of that, yeah. that of that that you know
0: you get that feeling of. And one of the huge things that maybe sort of passes you by if you were listing what so because the song is really different in so many ways is how uncluttered the rhythm guitar is. You know, there's not really any riffing here. You know, it's just kind of simple chords. There's a lot of slide guitars. There's a lot of accompaniment going on from Coke that we'll get to, but. Ultimately, you know, it's just a set. It's just a chord chart that you'll get an ultimate guitar and just strum out to your heart's content. You don't really need to feel too much. It's not a Dia's Eve or anything like that. Yep. And that allows Hetfield to, you know, engage himself a little differently, and and, and the whispers and um, the use of the smoke sound effect and stuff like that. He, he's having so much fun here.
8: Yeah, for sure. I think, like you said, the for what the decisions they made on the on the main on the main riffs. And how that's all allowing James to use his vocal ability more. Mm-hmm. And then that's accented more like, the, you know, the, to me, the drums stand out a lot more on this. I think Seeger himself said how he likes his version because on his version, the drums are really laid back or this is yeah. a little bit more up front. And then, you know, in between the lyrics, you get what Kirk's doing uh, it just perfectly accents each other.
0: Now, there's kind of um, there's a little formula I'm detecting as I listen to music over the years, and that is normally a different instrument can take a famous guitar line and transpose it in a captivating way. I'm struggling to think of any examples to back up my point, but stay with me. I don't think it works the other way. I don't really like when guitars do the saxophone part, a Kirk's part. I do find Kirk's playing quite irritating on this and compared to Clarence Clements really yeah wow. yeah I do I find it quite needling and and desolate and sharp
8: man I I love I love Kirk's interpretation of of the sax and the little Dwayne Almeny ain't eh? man some of the stuff that happens in between and these little you know especially when you got when you, when you got headphones on and you can really dig into it it's just mm-hmm. like I love those little tidbits he's throwing in there that kind of emulates a, a that slide
0: the a slide is a, a country guy's war. <laughs> 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 but uh no there is some good from Kurt. like i like um i'm forgetting exactly what happens in this song but there's a line uh, i think where headfield says swat or something and, and Kurt Gates really buzzy and warbly underneath and, and and nibbling and it was clarence clements who did the so basically The thing about Turn the Page interesting was it was never, like, a proper studio song. It was actually the the, the live one that I'm sure you know, uh, you know, got really, really famous. So it was on his, back in 72 album, which came out in 1973, and then there was a live version from Live Bullet, which still, you know, huge track. Uh, like, it's such an American thing you see on Wikipedia that doesn't really apply to Britain. It's always like, this song is still, gets significant airplay on classic rock stations. It's like, that kind of dichotomy does not exist in the UK. Like, there are classic rock stations, but not in that kind of widespread, uh, state way. But, um, yeah, I mean, the song itself, lots of kind of history of this song, it is an iconic song, and, um, you know, uh, the, this was the drummer in the band talking about the song being created. We've been playing somewhere in the Midwest or on the northern reaches on our way to South, North or South Dakota. The guitarist Mike Bruce was with us. we had been travelling all night from the Detroit area to make this gig, driving in this blinding snowstorm. It was probably three in the morning. Mike decided it was time to get gas. He was slowing down to exit the interstate and spider truck stop. We all had very long hair back then. It was the hippie era, but Skip, Mike, and Bob had all stuffed their hair up in their hats. You had to be careful out on the road like that because you get ostracised. When I walked in, there was a gauntlet of truckers making comments, is that a good Girl or a man, I was seeving. Those guys were laughing their asses off. A big, funny joke. That next right after we played our gig, I think it was Mitchell. Uh, Seeger says, Hey, I've been working on this song for a little bit, I've got this line for it. He played it on acoustic guitar, and there was that line, Oh, the same old cliches is that a woman or a man? It was turned the page.
8: Yeah, well, and I think this is only one of I think two songs that Seeger has said that he had wrote, wrote while he while on the road, right. all his other songs were written in studio. Um, I think this one still had to be finished up in studio, but it was, by and large, written on the road, which makes it kind of rare. But again, I think that adds to the flavor of the song.
0: Yeah, and the song endures, you know, forever and ever like on YouTube, there's a few years ago, him playing this track at piano uh, John English, who was an Australian singer in 1974, covered this song as the lead singer from his second studio album uh, peaked at number 20 in the charts over there, I think it won a Grammy over there as well um, mm-hmm. Seeger himself mentioned it where there's quite a cool interview a few years ago where he's asked about what does he think about Metallica's version and he says, quote, I loved it, they told me they were gonna uh, do it and I loved it I really like the drums, especially because our drums are really simple, it was a cool take on it, and it was says it's been done before another guy did it in australia and won a grammy for it so i mean yeah it has been done before i haven't actually checked out that version but the metallica version i mean it's quite a long song but you kind of know where the verses are going essentially there's not a second or third movement things just get more swished together in kind of a positive way but it's layer on layer of heaviness the song seems to get heavier without anything really changing
8: yeah, no, I would agree with that, and obviously, it kind of, you know, explodes at the end there.
2: Mm-hmm.
8: Um, very, very similar uh, in the progression that that Seeger does too in, in his version. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think again, it's hard for me to separate this from from the music video. Yeah, uh, you know, such <laughs> a kind of a <laughs> creepy, you know, dark music video, mm-hmm. and and the video comes to, you know, it's, you know, when when. She's on the bed and getting beat up by this the, yeah. this guy with her daughter looking. You know, it's a it's a very dark moment. You know, um, yeah, it just adds, I think, to the power of everything else that's going on with what James is doing vocally and and musically.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting how malleable your thought processes are in general with music because, yeah, just because I've not – I saw the video kind of – I didn't really grow up with the video or anything like that or kind of see it that regularly. We did the music videos episode, so I don't really have it for this song. I just kind of have the the yep. seagerness of it. And yep. I do like – um you know the way they've adapted it again the song doesn't exactly work for me on a melodic level but i do really like the effort here and um you know and this kind of americana as well I absolutely go gaga for people like john prine um and john Croce and people like that who's a song operator um i've been playing regularly it's one of the great songs i've ever written but um have you seen the quebec magnetic performance of this the the crowd are like brothers in arms people are emotional it, it it's a fan favorite i mean mm-hmm. it's the Woodstock as well, great performance of it.
8: Yeah, um, I mean, I got to see it at the All Within My Hand show too. Um, and, and everybody was singing along with it. I mean, it was so good. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's up there with, with Whiskey and some of the other covers that they've done that just people, you know, it's one that's just going to endure.
0: I mean, yeah, it's a pretty... You know, again, my opinions do not represent the wider Metallica fan <laughs> consensus and uh, you know, I've proved that yet again. But as we always do, guys, we go over to you at Metallica Pod. Chaosware says this has to be one of my favourite covers uh, from Metallica. It's always a treat when they play it live. Ralph says, and yep. Yeah. I mean it get, comes out, doesn't it? It's not one of these covers they keep under wraps.
8: No, for sure. I was you know, I was actually surprised they didn't pull it out in Vegas because at the time, I didn't I didn't know if it was exactly if it was her or not. But the mm-hmm. uh, but Ginger Lynn, who who was in the music video, was yeah. at the show in Las Vegas and um, back last fall. And apparently, that was her first Metallica show ever, mm. which was kind of interesting. Yeah. But uh, yeah, she was kind of back by the sound booth. I was like, oh, man, I saw this woman. I was like, man, she looks familiar. I think it's her. But I don't want to be that guy to be like <laughs> go up to someone and be like, hey, were you that? Porn star that yeah. was in the music video. I'd be <laughs> wrong, you know, and get slapped. But uh, someone, another friend of mine, talked to her later on in the show, and turned out, yeah, it was, it was her. Yeah, um, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's um. <laughs> Who did I fucking see? Um, I've seen it a few times live, and every time I see it live, it just it just kills. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh,
0: 92 times it's been performed live. It's funny you mention, actually, about meeting celebrities or seeing celebrities and not acting on it. I live in Oxford, uh, the same town that Radiohead are from, and uh, Johnny Greenwood, I saw him with his family like coming out of a bookshop. And I was like, oh, fuck, it's Johnny Greenwood. And he obviously didn't say anything. He's just like his young kids, his sons and shit. But it was just cool. Very cool scene. Not yeah. on the not on the Ginger Lynn level, but if, if those two guys <laughs> met as well, that would be a, an interesting unit. Or Johnny, Johnny Greenwood covered Turn the Page. Some sort of instrumental kind of gizmo glitchy version. i like to hear that. But yeah, 92 times been played. Uh, debuted October 18th, 1998 at LA. And uh, last played less than a year ago in San Francisco, 2018, November 3rd.
8: Yeah, uh, I believe that was the All Within My Hand show. Mm-hmm. If I remember That's that, right. right, yeah, at the yep. Masonic. So I was yep. there. Yeah, uh, yeah, I saw the last performance of this. Yeah.
0: So back to Twitter, Ralph saying, another cover that I love, one that fits the band perfectly, as it's about the rigors of being on the road, which is something they are all too familiar with. The boys perform my usual magic on this one and make it far superior to the original. Het is in top form vocally here. I'm glad, they're, I'm glad they replaced the sax with the guitar. It works much better for me here. John Bradshaw says, no, it has to be negative, but there's a couple of stinkers in a row. Bloody hell, this is horrible. What did they stoop to these depths? Freyden saying, James's vocal truly brings out the emotion that the lyrics elicit. This is especially true when the band fades out and it's only the vocals and Jason's bass line. he says, This is Gary Jig's Bleeding Me for myself. Just like Bleeding Me, you can tell James is pouring his heart out and is a bit of a precursor to his eventual rehab. Great tune. Jam saying, Really like it. It was so slow and heavy at the same time. A good song to sing along to. And finally, Fixer says, Masterpiece of a cover. The Woodstock 99 performance is particularly amazing. Love playing this when driving alone. Um, any uh, final thoughts for you, Chris, on Turn the Page?
8: No, I think it's uh it's going to be one of these enduring uh, cover songs that that Metallica is going to have that we'll continue to enjoy as long as the band keeps going.
0: Mm-hmm. And actually, one of the things I want to point out as well, um, Kirk's kind of kind of kind of that lumbering riff that comes in after that uh, pull down with Jason. What do you make of that? And also the kind of the the, the lead that kind of penetrates through as well towards the end.
8: I man, I I think everything that they decided to do, uh, especially at the end I, I Kirk's playing on this does not bug me at all. I, I, I love what he does on this. I think it accents it fine. I I, I think for what you know, they they rock sized I don't know, better word, but maybe they, uh, they metallicized this song <laughs> appropriately. Um uh yeah i don't i don't have any complaints about Mm -hmm. about any of that i i I love every moment about this song um i like the way again kirk kind of accents stuff between lyrics um yeah i i love it
0: yeah i just there's certain things like when the song kicks in at the 42nd mark and just sort of (laughs) clatters and it just feels a little
8: cheap country to me i mean they're trying to keep they're, they're trying to keep um, some connections back to Seeger's version, right? Sure. They did not. They not stray. You know, while they metallicized the song, they didn't. You know, they they still kept some sort of foundational elements. You know, and mm-hmm. that was one of those things. Like that's just a when you think about Seeger's version of "Turn the Page," you think about the saxophone and those parts. You know, and so it would it would you got to do something almost to to bring that into the song. The song is not complete without some sort of interpretation of that in my opinion
0: yeah yeah certainly i just you know we're all with different ears yet again and i must stress that like i'm sure a lot of people to them this is one of their you know great songs like people seem to really really bow down to this track but there's a certain grandiosity with the melody there's a certain didactic nature to just the sound of it the kind of slothy burble that just Kind of unsettles me uh, a little bit. But uh, again, people, let me know what you like about this song, what you hate about this song. What do you think about Bob Seeger? Seeger, by the way, uh, suffered from tinnitus, uh, which is obviously the ringing in the ears caused by exposure to loud volumes. And that explains the line uh, later in the evening when you lie awake in bed with the echo from the amplifiers ringing in your head, which is the line that kind of accompanies James and Jason sharing that spotlight there, which is really cool. And, um, you know, been covered a lot. By the Australian guy, by Metallica. This was a big single. It was number one on yep. again, again with the American idiosyncrasies with music. But again, you guys have like ninety
8: weeks. I believe it was number
0: one. But you guys have like ninety five charts over there. I don't understand.
8: Well, yeah, I, you know, it's just like there's an award show for what is heat seekers. You know, is... country's got like three. Di- country music has like three different yeah. award shows or something. You know, so yeah. I assume they guys got all these all these different charts just so you know, different people can you know, more people can claim they're number one for different
2: yeah. different things. Come
0: Let's push on to the day's song then, um, which is a cover by one of Cliff's favorite bands. I've got to be honest with you, Alex. It's a band that I just don't know that well. I know Ethan Luck loves them. He mentioned them recently when I was on the show. Um, what, what are the misfits to you as a band? Uh,
9: the misfits were this T-shirt. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was that was my first exposure to them, was I thought that is the one of the coolest yeah. T-shirts I had ever seen, that the... With the wine, with the wine glass, and the revealing the woman's skull, I yeah. just thought that was the that was how I first discovered him because the record store, of course, I hung out. He sold a ton of those, and um, that was you know. And I never, I never got a copy of that, but I did get into Danzig later mm. when his. Uh, um, so to tell the truth, I haven't. I've heard the song in the past and that, but not not them not very much.
0: No, no. And the artwork you're talking about, as well as kind of the logo of Misfits the Skull, which is kind of Ramon's Nirvana ubiquitous like still on T shirts. It's still such a popular design. Interesting that um My Darling was the sixth single of the band, the horror punk band, and the back cover artwork was done by Pusshead, weirdly enough. Yep. Yeah, he was cool to see that lineage.
9: Yeah, that's how he started with them and then jumped Got the big jump onto uh, Damage Justice. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, and and, and
9: there ever since. So
0: this song for me, um, you know, when I first listened to this album many years ago, I always enjoyed it from the off, even not appreciating the context. I don't know the band that well, as I say, but it's quite a propulsive, quite a clean, dare I say a little bit poppy just in terms of its reputation, but it's a very enjoyable song, though.
9: No? Oh, yeah, I, I really liked it. It's that, what I liked about it was that just, thin punk production mm. you know and i've always liked glenn danzig's sort of evil elvis sure. uh, snarl that he had to his voice on yeah. parts uh uh that, that i thought was pretty cool and it, it's a uh, eternally you can listen to that song over and over and it, it's not one that really gets old
0: mm, mm. no definitely cuz i mean it doesn't have much time i think it's like no. 2 minutes 20 i think it's the second shortest song um, on the whole, the Garage Records, apart from Stone Cold Crazy, which is like ten yeah. seconds shorter than it. But um, I actually went back and listened to the original before we did the episode, and I don't know if you've heard the Misfits version compared to the Metallica version, but it's far muddier. And there's this weird beep that they kind of keep in the new song, but in the old song,
9: there's just a beep going on the whole time. I just I noticed that too. It's yeah. like is that is that some sort of harmonic thing? Yeah, I don't know. Is there meeting or is that purpose and? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like with some of that older stuff. It's like, yeah, I'm just gonna leave that a mystery. I I'm not gonna find out. My, I don't want to dig around. It's it's just pretty cool. I always thought that um, that odd production of those punk records, you know, if yeah. they can call them produced. I mean, yes. it's, you could just picture someone in the room going. All right, one, two, three, four, go, and turning sure. on the tape machine.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Equalizers uh, for quitters, I think, yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, You know, someone in the YouTube comments, actually, of the Misfits track said, was the microphone in the same room as the band? Because it genuinely does feel like that. Like Whereas this Metallica version, it's very bright, it's very powerful, and, you know, it has a lot of momentum.
9: Yep. A great song before going out.
0: Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> even even uh you know, the burp at the start and James going like yeah like you can tell mm-hmm. you can tell the band are enjoying this one.
9: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I love when it's one of those songs that he plays that he pull, that he plays on the old flying V mm. Um of his. It's sort of uh that beat up guitar. <laughs> yeah, and uh There's not too
0: much really to say about the composition of the song, you know, it's just got a nice um, movement to it, it's got a nice connectivity, it's always going forward lots of refrains. I think the word baby is said like 20 times and darling as well. You know, it's punk. Yeah. A lot of, uh, kind of coming in there, but, uh, lyrically it's quite effective. Wouldn't you say?
9: Yeah. Uh, it's got one, of my, uh, one, I noticed one, of my, it's got a favorite phrase of mine. Your future's in an oblong box. I always yeah. thought that was a, <laughs> yeah, a great that. turn of phrase. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is true. actually. You can imagine that sort of tattooed on James's back or something. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but it sounds good. I want I want to reiterate that. I think the guitars, the drums, it all it all sounds very very sparkly, but not in a negative sense. You know what I mean? You really hear the instruments.
9: Right. Yeah, it's just uh, it's just moves ahead. It's uh, heavy, it's uh, easy to just crank up. I have the Garage Inc on vinyl and I was playing that song over and over as you know, a little different when you're 50 years old and your kids are getting ready to go to school and that's playing in the background <laughs> let's get ready to go to school kids die die my darling <laughs> and it was a uh it was a single it was the third
0: single from um, the release as well which is interesting mm-hmm. which i mean it's kind of a quite an obvious choice i guess quite a sort of, yeah. you know explosive little two minute
9: yeah great song i have never seen it live i've i watched a couple of it uh I watched the one uh, from the, I can't remember what year it is now, but it's the tour, but uh, it looked like it was was one of those that they play with all the lights up. Sure. um, Because it's towards the end of the show, and uh, that looked like it'd be really fun to see.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, it does, actually. And it lends itself to, you know, vocals from the crowd. Um, Yeah. There's some nice harmonies. I think James's voice sounds excellent on this track.
9: Yeah, that's that era of his voice I really like a lot. Mm. That was when he was just converting from the, you know, as he says, yelling in key to singing and.
0: yeah, and uh, it's nice as well. I mean, I was reading uh, Mick Wall's Enter Night, and he made this connection, and I don't know if it's necessarily true, but it probably is. And he's talking about how some songs on, um, you know, Gary Jenk are paying homage to Cliff Burton in a sense, such as uh, this Misfits track and the Leonard Skinner track as well, which
9: were two of his personal favorite bands. Yeah, yeah that's true. He was a. Um, uh that was quite, you know, this one, you know, could understand when it came out, but when you heard Metallica doing whiskey, uh, doing, um, well, whiskey in the jar was also mm. a fa- favorite of his, but then, uh, um, yeah, that was. I'm thinking, turn the page all of a sudden, but that was a Bob yeah. Rock thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's uh, it, it's nice. It's nice. They you know they always have a sense of history. Metallica um, moving forward, and similarly, them covering this song, which again, I'm sorry, dedicated Misfits
9: listeners who might be screaming it.
0: Was this a big Misfits song of theirs, or was it kind of
9: more of a B-side, or? I would have to ask a Misfits fan. Yes. <laughs> Email him <yeah. laughs>
0: <Yeah. laughs> If it was a Misfits podcast out there, I'll uh I'll, yeah. you know, I'm sure I'll get in touch with us. But um yeah, the song's been performed hundred and sixteen times live, um, which is quite a lot, really, considering from a Garage song. Um first yeah. played October eighteenth, ninety eight, in LA. Uh, last played in October twenty second this year, uh, twenty seventeen, in London. So that must have been just before I saw them. They played that, which is quite cool as well. Um <laughs> any any closing thoughts on Die Die My
9: Darling? Um, I'd like to hear them do some more covers like this. Mm. I I would. I'd like to hear them do a couple, a few more older punk things like this. I, I think they're. um, even if it was just something that the way the first garage or garage re-revisited was just that, um, lo-fi, not Mm. very produced, as they said in the liner notes. So just, you know, even if it was, you know, three or four songs, that'd be great.
0: Yeah, kind of like the Ramones covers um, after James yeah. came back from rehab. They they kind of were a nice way of warming up, weren't they? Yeah. yeah is there anything, any bands you can think of specifically like to hear them cover? I mean, I know that Kirk loves GBH. I'd like to hear them tackle Ramones. Mm-hmm.
9: You know, I, I'd i like to hear him do... Uh, Maybe a, an early Suicidal song. Because cool. I know they're, they're fans of them. Um, yeah. And especially since you have Rob in the band. Yeah, yeah, that'd be dope. Who is, who is with them. That'd be pretty cool.
0: Mm, yeah, that that's a really good idea. And, I mean, everyone pushes for these sort of things, Alex. Everyone talks about, oh, S&M 2, my dream set list.
9: Gary 2. Yeah. I mean, is it likely they do more covers, do you think? Oh, I've been, you know, I, with the whole... You know, when, in '91, when the Black Album came out, and there was the whole deal with their selling out, and then load and reload, and you got more people angry about it. I, I'm content with what they do. I, you know, they do what they like, and it's been very successful. I've liked generally everything they've ever done, except for, you know, I'm a little iffy on, on uh, saying anger. Okay, and people can stop calling me when it came out <laughs> it's like because i was the metallica sure, freak in the group sure. of people and they're calling me on the phone this album sucks <laughs> okay yes i know <laughs> and he's sore and he's blind and he's lame and he's dirty and he's poor give me more give me
0: more give me more give me more, give me
7: more there's a day you're along your
6: that was four years ago, and in that in, in those four years you've never done a live podcast with anyone. Face to face with someone in the room with you. Uh, sort
0: of. I've done a few. I've done a few of my battle rap ones with various guys in Oxford. There's a sort of oh, like people come
6: people can for a big like stoner session. Like, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, just sort of <laughs> you know what I mean. Those sort of those sort of poets and, and whatever those sort of guys. But well, um,
6: ha- well, have you having an episode with the camera on. That's that, that's an interesting. One. Uh,
0: yeah, I, d- I don't really feel obliged to do that. It's I don't know as a podcaster, isn't like, it?
6: So, to like look at them and yeah. watch, also looking at your notes. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, um, we are talking about Man. Mm-hmm. I am here because I'm seeing Paul McCartney with with you uh, I can't believe it, it's kind of like a life's ambition for me, uh, I thought who, who would be the one guy who would appreciate this show more than anyone Uh all of those people weren't available, so I picked Tom. Mm-hmm. But we are going to have such an amazing time tomorrow. We're going to be doing an episode, like kind of like a little preamble and a little post-show review, where we're just going to be essentially re- reviewing Paul McCartney's 2018 Freshen Up Tour. Yeah. The set list looks pretty
0: fucking mental, S- doesn't it? Set list oh is my incredible. <laughs> it starts
6: with a hard day's night. And it just gets better from there. Yeah, oh yeah. my god.
0: There's good winks sprinkled in, but I think there's something like forty odd songs, and like twenty nine in them are Beatles, or some sort of ratio like that. It is, you know, outstanding.
6: It's, it's going to be three hours of mostly good material and then wing stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's going to be a fantastic night, but not let, let let's not talk about Paul McCartney and Paul McCartney <laughs> and my Paul McCartney podcast too much. Um, are you aware of Nick Cave? Were you aware of Nick mm-hmm. Cave before this? Because for me, all I knew about Nick Cave was that. Our mutual uh, friend and my uni flatmate, Chris Hicklin, was reading Bunny during the last year mm-hmm. of the year, which was Nick mm-hmm. Cave's like, fiction novel. But like, obviously, being Tom Waits fans, and this is the, the, only the first time I'm going to talk about Tom Waits on this episode, <laughs> obviously, Nick Cave gets compared to Tom Waits Always,
0: yeah.
2: yeah. And
6: I'm not going to lie, this song that uh, we listened to a uh, low, low amount is a, is a Nick Cave cover, and mm-hmm. when I went back and researched and looked into the original Nick Cave cover, oh, was I a little bit underwhelmed at that, that comparison I like so the
0: original cover personally but no
6: well we're going to get in, into that yeah. when we like talk talk about the song but yeah w- did you know much about Nick Cave at all before what, this episode
0: I mean there are some rules in life that you find as self-evident truths like normally no one's mum likes The Simpsons normally that's something you can count on yeah. And there are there are Venn diagrams. There are black holes of taste. You can only be into certain people in a way, I find. And that's sort of a restrictive thing to say. But I don't find too many Tom Waits, Nick Cave fans. You know, I don't find many Tom Waits, Leonard Cohen fans. You know, I find they have... You know, they have one or the other. Yeah, they sort like, of go in that direction. like
6: fans of Shenmue,
0: yeah. But I remember Barney Hoskins. I think it was in the foreword to Low Side of the Road, which is the Bible oh, for uh, big Tom of, Waits scholars. Big B.H.,
6: just
0: saying. You know, uh, oh. someone like Mark Lewisham. Uh, it's similar in the Beatles field in terms of the scholarship that they've done there. Uh, Low Side of the Road is definitely one of them all. All-time favourite up there with like Electric Eden by Rob Young and and stuff like that. Um, you know, crazy, crazy stuff. But he he reminisced in his student days, I think something like that. He was hanging out with Nick Cave. They were like out of their heads or something, and Nick Cave was obsessed with Blue Valentine. Oh, okay. He was listening to it a hell of a lot. Uh I think I said to you recently, Red Shoes off that record. She sends
3: me blue.
0: If you don't know that, there's something wrong with you. If you don't know that, but again, we've veered off into Tom Waits territory. But Nick Cave, Nick Cave, for me personally. There are certain elements of him that I absolutely adore. His work with Warren Ellis, his film school work, uh, the Assassination of Jesse James, especially,
2: oh, is, oh, is yeah, a I fucking
0: know, outstanding. Yeah. It's n- like fuck your fucking you know Thomas Newman sort of shit. Like I don't give a, I don't give a fuck about Desplat. I don't give a fuck about Tree Alive Life soundtrack. I really give a fuck about the my Road G- soundtrack, my, my G- the G- Proposition. James. Which is a fantastic John Hillcoat movie. They also scored... I think it was like a double disc. It was called like Lunar Luna Map or something. They, they, they worked together so well. Also, Warren Ellis has been in the Dirty Free, uh, which are a mind-blowing trio uh, that he leads with a guitar and drums as well. So Nick Cave certainly is someone that I respect. He isn't someone that I've really explored so much. I know a good friend of our, Chris Hicklin, um, adores him. I've often found his songs... They run on kind of his adrenaline and charisma... Whereas I think Weights is a much more truncated. Weights' songs are quite short, you uh, know.
6: Weights is oddly more accessible, I find. And that's saying something, because Weights is, is one of the most uh. in- inaccessible, most difficult to kind of get into our artists ever. Mm. And from like I listened to most of the uh, uh, Let Love In album, and I, I just wasn't that that impressed, really. Although, when I was listening to this song, I thought, you know what? This and, and the Metallica version sounds a bit like the theme tune for Peaky Blinders. And, and, then it, and then it turns out that Nick Cave does, yeah,
0: does yeah, the yeah, theme yeah. Tune for I mean, Peaky
6: Blinders from, from this album. And I mean, The Bad
0: Seeds, of course, as well. Yes,
6: Nick Cave and The Bad Seeds. Um, another question, almost for my benefit, more so than your audience, your audience is probably very, very well read, like my audiences in Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. Garage Inc. is the Metallica obligatory cover album. Mm-hmm. And is it the first album with the new bassist? No. No, is that the one after that?
0: No, there was a cover album that they did Um, Before Justice, um, which kind of had a a smattering of covers there with Jason debuting on that. Um, But this one was more established. This one was kind of replaying some of those in a modern context and also new covers thrown into the mix as well, such as this. And this is a really daring one, really. Like, when you look at a lot of the influences on Garaging, they're mostly, you know, New Wave of British Heavy Metal, yeah. that sort of riffage, you know, there's a lot of kind of similar things you can find in Killamore, especially, and the, the antecedents there. But here, take it from Nick Cave, take it from a recent release.
6: Well, yeah, you know what? It's interesting that it is so recent, because when you said Garaging, I was like, okay, this is going to be like Aussie era of pre Killermore era, pre-Tallica, sure. if you will. And then this came out only four years prior. That's right. Um, obviously, the mo- let love in. Yeah, but apparently, uh, Garage is made up of several different recording sessions. That's right. And this is the 1998 recording mm-hmm. session that we're talking about here. Four years after the Let Love In album, um, it, I guess the the Let Love In Nick Cave and the Bad Seas version is kind of like a cod mockery of conventional love songs. I, I prefer
0: the chorus. Like I know, we, I know, we haven't really got into the Metallica one, but I I find it quite enigmatic. The Let Love In chorus, I find it more effective and a bit more endearing. And I think it's Nick Cave's fault, really, because Metallica are just tracing his shapes on this song. But my problem, really, with Love Man is it's quite long. There's no real instrumental interlude. It kind of relies on the chorus to carry it through, which has Kirk doing some interesting stuff mm. with the wah. Um, but, 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 yeah, as a song, I maybe prefer the Nick Cave version. But, but no, the Metallica version, I think James especially is, is, is relishing this role, you know, this kind of southern gothic idea.
6: Well, for me quite distinctly when I went and listened to the Nick Cave version after I listened to the Metallica version first obviously that kind of soils any kind of freshness sure, that sure. The, the Nick Cave one will ever have but for me quite distinctly okay I immediately like the, the the Metallica one more so
2: mm-hmm.
6: it's just a lot tighter and and, and, and even though the uh, Cave version does have some quite uh, interesting weightsy and ending cacophonies and you know, all those ringing bells and garbled yells and you know yeah. foreboding atmosphere and, and stuff like that but for me, this felt, and obviously um, being a Paul McCartney like, I, I, this is the only comparison I can I, I, I can use, this to me feels like the Guns N' Roses version of Live and Let Die, whereby the fans are just going to have to concede here that the cover is just better. It wow. just reinterprets the song in a new, fresh way and just leaves the original in the dust. Mm-hmm. Is, like I say, the instrumentation is tight, Hetfield's vocals are much more enjoyable to listen to and understandable, <laughs> as are the backing vocals. How oh, much love <laughs> <laughs> It's so good, and like there's a wonderfully cheesy edge to it. The course is executed in a far more gratifying way, and like mm. I mean, I could just go on. It, it would be just this side by side comparison of yeah. of like my own of my own biases. But I think the key factor with the Metallica cover, and that you know this 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 kind of sounds a little bit a little bit dorky, but what they do is that they they come out with a more badass, satisfying and. Accessibly palatable song Where they kind of it, it, it almost goes to the point Whereby the Nick Cave version Almost feels like they're the cover version With the more avant-garde take on this hard-ass rocker okay, that, yeah, yeah. That, that Metallica put out Sure, And like you know, And you know what's
0: funny as well, sorry just to interrupt yeah. Reload had a song called Bad Seed mm. It's like, hello Influences <laughs> But, but <laughs> Not. no But no, you're right and I think what it does, but what the garage ink does as well is that it casts the band in these different shapes. And I think oh, but a dude, lot... they,
6: they play impeccably. They really do. Oh.
0: They really do. The stealthy bass. the how much longer, as you say, that it's kind of ringing in the ear, this sort of chain beast, this anima, this subconscious, the, the how much longer kind of pulsing in Cantry. uh, the acronym detail as well. What did you make of that sort of spelling w- lover man?
6: Well, dude, the, the, the thing that I immediately thought of, uh, um... I'm like, you know, despite my best trying to, you know, put my best podcasting hat on, Mm. all I can think of was, you know, when Ross is on that double date with uh, Rachel and Joey when they just first start going out, and Ross is like, L is for life, and what is life without love? But it it gets
0: re-spelt as well, so we get R for Rape, but we also get it for Render as well, um, as it plays for us.
6: It's the worst part of the song for me. (laughs) I, I,
0: I don't mind it, actually, and it shows a side to Nick Cave that could perhaps ring true with Tom Waits' Acolytes as well, this, you know, someone who relishes in the spoken word and how things are spelt and expressed, and you know, you know what,
6: acronyms have been ruined for me ever since the Tom Waits press conference video. That
0: that's that's fire, though. I mean, using a constellation to track your to track your across America. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and pesca jumba. Uh, pesca jumba <laughs> is what it's called, yeah. Uh Dogs, though.
6: What was the um ac- the acronym in R E?
0: I can't remember what it was. I remember being a child in primary school, and Ryan, actually, our friend, um, we who had to write did a... did
6: what episode?
0: Uh, we did Battery together. Yeah, you did Battery. Um, we, we, we had to do an acrostic poem, so we had the word Christmas, and you would just write a little...
6: <laughs> Merry Christmas to little everyone. ...little word.
0: And for tea, he used the word tiz, which I thought was great, so... Uh, tiz. Yeah. <laughs> which I guess is a, I guess a Christmas... But yeah, the, the base here is snake-like. Uh... You know, like a metronome, an elegant lead guitar as well, kind of slides across with a lot of fervor. Quite
6: effortless, the whole, the whole thing. Isn't and it?
0: gusto, yeah. And the, the, you know, the languishment and the heaving chorus as well is a real powerful proposition. And as I say, the issue is for me that you're getting into like the fourth chorus of this thing, mm. and there hasn't really been a, a breakdown. You know, there hasn't really been something convincing. In terms of the instrument It's a little bit repetitive um, isn't
6: that Nick Cave's problem, not I, suppose
0: problem? So. I suppose so I suppose He does have long songs And as I say It's the instrumentalist of him That I really do admire um, You know I think he's Absolutely incredible And the song does Have a Have a spookiness
6: Yeah I mean, I'm, stealthy I, I'm not sure if you If you've discussed this With other Garage Inc songs yet But like Is it like These are their favourite songs Or do they go to an artist And find the most Metallica-esque song To adapt Mm-hmm Like are there other songs in Nick Cave's discography that you might know that would be a better suit for a, 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 a Metallica cover? Maybe we should ask Chris.
0: Yeah, yeah. The problem is, we—I mean, I—I I myself, as I say, don't really know his bandy career that well or the birthday party. I think this is solo there, career. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Get in touch with MetallicaPod at gmail.com. Get in touch with me as well at MetallicaPod Patreon, there, iTunes, all that sort of stuff. Nick Cave, actually. Uh, talking about Loverman said, Loverman quote was a song we almost didn't do because it seemed like a very weak idea at the time of recording. Mm. It was supposed to be just a throwaway song about desire. I was squirming about how banal it was. I changed the whole atmosphere so the guy who's telling the story is weak and dysfunctional. I put in the bits where I spell out Loverman. It was a great mm. surprise to everyone.
6: It's surprisingly lame, but yes. <laughs> Can, uh, can we just talk about the other Tom Waits thing related, related so, to Gary Jink, please? So
0: so there is a big Tom Waits thing related to Gary Jink, as Sam mentions, because um, Dennis, Dennis Murayev, who I've had on the show before, we did Hardwired. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a good friend of the show and he lent me, or should I say he's provided copies of me of So What? So I get to go through the whole archive of So What? So I was doing research for the episode, went on the Gary Jink issue, which is like mm-hmm. volume five, issue five or something like that. It was like the Christmas issue. And they have all these Garage Inc. interviews. And they actually talk a little bit about Loverman as well. So James says uh, why they picked the song, probably because of the same vibe, I guess, that everyone else leaned towards the Loverman thing because the chorus is so abrasive, which is Ooh, a good it's thing. it's a
6: good Hetfield like, chorus.
2: Loverman! <laughs> <laughs> like, it allows him
6: to, like, use his fucking vowels well, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, like a, a good Hetfield song needs a vowel or an N.
2: <laughs> nah! Man You know It just
6: works so
0: well You know One of the great things About um, Metallica At this time as well James and Jason I mean they still are uh, Huge Waits fans Giant fans of Tom Waits (laughs) Um, And uh, Yeah he gets mentioned In So What Which is pretty cool So basically Jason is asked Like is there anyone else They wanted to cover That they didn't get A chance to cover And he said I mentioned artists No titles Tom Waits Was my first choice (gasps) 16 shells from a 30 odd yes, six. What a great choice! Mm, great song off swordfish. 16 shells from a
6: 30 odd six.
0: I thought would have been cool. Some of the older stuff off Rain Dogs, too. Oh, wow, it's his name, and I never mentioned Song Rise. Inside a Broken clock. Huh? Mm, what would you hear of Rain Dogs? Hang oh. down your hit <laughs> for some <row. laughs> And then you a me. But uh. Yeah, and they basically say, "I'm surprised Tom. Swear. White, <laughs> I'm surprised Tom Waits didn't fly." And he says, "Me too." But the Nick Cave thing came together, real world. He says, "So um, I don't really know what he means by that."
6: Well, it, having a Nick Cave cover and a Tom Waits cover on the same album is probably going to double the kind of variety you're going to have. You know, yeah. so it, they they kind of to people who don't know the difference be- be- between Nick Cave and Tom Waits, they sound the same. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. You know, to the, yeah, to to the layman. But, yeah, honestly, if the quality of the covers are this high on the rest of Garaging, then I must say I am sold. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm glad I've been able to come on to this ep- episode and, and talk positively about a song because it, it didn't go down too well. The, the
0: last episode you were on was Hated, if which, I'm which was. You An came Justice on for, for And Justice for All, which I think was the track, yeah. eighth episode. And a lot of people say you didn't like get Metallica and stuff in the Even comments. Even I,
6: I, I love the song and it's in like it's it, it's on my Spotify most played of 2018.
0: I spoke about the song before, and the main riff of the song and the sort of you know the anchor of the song is is incredible. You know, I absolutely adore that riff and that progression. But
6: it is a bit too long.
0: I mean. It is a bit too long, and the central idea the melodic breakdown that say something like a master has or a change like sanitarium like it just kind of repeats the opening heavier and it that for me isn't very satisfying it's a little tedious um, I don't really respect where the song goes so that was my opinion then that's my opinion now <laughs> song, I mean, this song is so much more, obviously it's on Garaging, it's so much more than a tribute, I, you know, I love the fact that the band have not just covered one song, they've covered five songs, they've also composed it themselves into this straight-up offering of worship, you know, this huge tableau of riffs, The it's not like they've covered all five songs and put them one after the other, they've sort of rearranged them, and new riffs go into new riffs, and, you know, often with merciful folk, like, I've got to say, I am actually... Getting into Merciful Fate a fair bit. I wasn't really familiar with them at all before Metallica, and even listened to this song over the years before the podcast. Didn't really seek them out for any reason. Always enjoyed these songs, but I like. This sort of metal, I like this sort of writing. It reminds me a little bit of like I, I'm big into poetry as well. I used to be into it a lot more, but I'm still very much into um, you know older poetry, classical poetry, that sort of stuff. And one of the things that I like in classical poetry is the tension between the constraints of the form, so the meter, the rhyme scheme, etc., and what's being said. You know, not even that old poetry, sort of like romantic poetry or fantasy eclect poetry or stuff like that, or even more modernist imagist stuff. Like you know, they weren't going all out there with you you know, kind of abandoning and going into free verse, they were kind of acting within these confines, and that's kind of what you see within this guitar playing, you know, think of like Merciful Fate, or think of like Dokken, or stuff like that, you know, it's all pedal pointy, it's all power chordy, the solos kind of all use the same scales, the topics are all very familiar, but you know, you can still break new ground, you can still create exciting music from that, and that's what I find throughout this medley, and I have gone back and explored Merciful Fate's back catalogue, and the riffs are there, obviously, and the playing is outstanding. The vocals from King Diamond are interesting, and, you know, we'll compare and contrast as we go through each part of this, uh, each constituent part of Merciful Fate, but Ultimately, King Diamond's vocals are incredibly high pitched. It's basically kind of imagine all James, and you know that volatile wavelength that he didn't like. all James, he would, he would, he would. It's not like he'd start low and get high. Often it'd be the opposite. The, you know, the first syllable of the line be yeah, and then he'd go like that. And it was you know the production didn't help as well. And King Diamond's kind of like that. You never know where he's actually gonna go with his range. So let's just do a little bit of history on Merciful Fate. Merciful Fae are a Danish heavy metal band from Copenhagen. They were formed in 1981 by vocalist King Diamond and guitarist Hank Sherman. They were influenced by progressive rock and hard rock, with lyrics dealing with Satan and the occult. They were part of the first wave of black metal in the early to mid-1980s. Many of the bands from this movement went on to influence later black metal musicians in the 1990s, particularly Norway. Now, I just want to quote from a book I've been reading recently that I got from the library that's an okay book book um i think it's a little overrated it's been recommended to me by a few people this is a history of heavy metal by andrew o'neill um andrew o'neill is like a um i think he's like a british comic like a comedian or something like that he's played at like download festival in the edinburgh fringe and i believe this was kind of part of a show that he had that he's then merged into a book so this is like a grand history of heavy metal, I mean, it doesn't even break 300 pages, so he's going through things at quite a quick pace, and it's a very personal journey as well, it tries a little hard to be funny for me, there's a lot of footnotes that are a bit eye-rolling, to be honest, that really try and make you go for and fail, but, you know, there's some funny uh, chapter titles, I love the title of chapter 12, for example, in the late 90s, every band I love went to shit, (laughs) and he does spend quite a lot of time on Metallica and Lode in the book, and, and those sections are quite interesting, but yeah. Speaking of merciful fate, Andrew O'Neill says... Something of an honorary member of the black metal Big Four, Merciful Fate are considerably more high fidelity and melodic than Venom, Baffery or Hellhammer. What set them apart from any other metal band in the first half of the 1980s was their unapologetic and serious commitment to Satanism. While Venom talked the talk on record, Merciful Fate's frontman King Diamond was a fully paid-up member of Anton LaVey's Church of Satan and a friend of LaVey too. Their Satanism was sincere compared to the more light-hearted approach of Venom or the Satanism as Metaphor approach of Baffery and Hellhammer—they conveyed an occult authenticity. Musically, Merciful Fate owed a great debt to Judas Priest in their use of dual guitars and av- in their use of dual guitars and falsetto vocals. Though, whereas Rob Halford used both ends of his considerable range, King Diamond stays in the upper register the whole time, making for a distinctive and divisive style and interestingly despite being from Lars's homeland I think he was kind of semi-aware of the band in the tape trading days but when him and James really started to listen was a guy called Patrick Scott. Patrick was actually enlisted to help send out um, copies of No Life to Leather back in the day and this is from Mick Wall's Enter Night book saying quote I was actually really the only person mailing them out it was a little bit selfish of Lars but it was helping a friend too I had these pen pals like Metal Mike from from Ardshark and Bernard Doe at Metal Forces and some other pen pals. I would just send them demos and t-shirts and they'd send me stuff back but they were just going nuts over Metallica even in countries where you thought the cool bands were they thought Metallica was the coolest band and in terms of Merciful Fate Again, quoting from the book, it was also Patrick who first played the Merciful Fate. James would play Curse of the Pharaohs to get his guitar tone down. They loved Merciful Fate. They were a big influence on Metallica as far as an approach to being progressive with time changes and putting just riffs in. They didn't want chord progressions, they wanted riffs. That was the big thing. Ten riffs in one song, you can make ten songs out of. And... You know, it is fun to play archaeologist going back and listening to Merciful Fate, in particular to this song, uh, Merciful Fate, rather than the band as a whole. And in Curse of Pharaoh, that you mentioned... I hear Hit the Lights. I mean, we'll get to Curse Pharaoh to the second one, but there's riffs all over the place. I think explicitly in the Kill Em All DNA, it doesn't take a genius to see that a lot of those song ideas were grandfathered by Merciful Fates concert. And the bands had met back in the day a fair few times. This comes from Joel McIver's book. This is a really humorous incident between Kirk and King Diamond. Quote, all this madness occasionally spilled on... Oh, all this madness... All this madness occasionally spilled over on stage, as when Metallica attended a merciful Fate show after a prolonged drinking session. Fate singer King Diamond had become friends with the band through his countryman Lars Ulrich and invited them on stage, but Hammer, somewhat worse for wear, managed to knock the King over. As King Diamond told me, quote, We were standing next to each other, he was leaning on me, and suddenly my balance went flat on my ass on stage. Unperturbed, Diamond laughed it off and forgot all about it. It emerged that after the show, Hetfield, Burton and Ulrich told the confused Hammer as a joke that Diamond was furious with him for the incident. Although Kirk was clearly worried about this, the others forgot to tell him later that they were kidding. And it was not until 1999 when Hammer approached King Diamond at a backstage party and apologised to the Bemused singer that he realised how he'd been tricked all along. This band was such a mythic band for him, and you can understand Kirk's horror of maybe felling his hero, they really were titans to the boys. And again from Joel's book, I love this anecdote of them treating the King's lyrics as some holy text, quote in February 1984 the band wound up the Seven Dates of Hell tour bid farewell to Venom and drove up to Copenhagen where they rehearsed the material for the album at Merciful Fates practice rooms as it happened Merciful Fates singer King Diamond had left a book of lyrics lying around the rehearsal space and Lars and James couldn't resist taking a peek King Diamond would say quote there was one day when we were using the room after them and they saw my book of lyrics and said shall we look at it but then they got scared and said he'll know that we looked at it he'll sense it but they looked at it really quickly anyway then I walked in and went straight to it like I always did, and they were terrified. So we start off with the shortest part of the medley. This song is Satan's Fall. I should say that of the five songs, four of them come from their debut album, Melissa, which is, you know, Crazy quality! It's a really good album. I should be looking at it quite a while. And um, a corpse of that soul. I think that was like maybe an EP track or something like that on Spotify. That only seems to be on their third album called The Beginning, which also has some BBC live sessions on there. So I don't know. if it's actually a studio record. I'm pretty sure they only. Re- I'm pretty sure they only released two records and then sort of broke up and then came back or whatever. But um, yeah, opens with this jackhammer riff that reminds me so much of the closing song of um, Megadeth's masterpiece. Rust in Peace, Rust in Peace, um, Polaris. I'll just play that here. Tell me what you think. (laughs) Kirk's solos over the top of it. I think Kirk's work throughout this song is absolutely fantastic. You know, some of my favourite stuff I've heard of him in years at this point. I think this really shits on so much of the watery load-reload leads. but, But here... He has the energy, he has the vigour, you know, con brio here, the way he's playing. And James is relishing it as well, talking about the blood of a newborn child. And oh my god, these lyrics are so fucking good as well. The moon being frozen blue, and the long black coats, a shelter for the rain... Bats leaving their trees, and yeah, it's about 44 seconds worth. There's not too much here, um, but again, you can see a lot, of the, a lot of the antecedents, a lot of the influence that would come on those more droney riffs that they would employ on on Kill Em All and Ride the Lightning. The song then draws away slightly, and we get to my favourite part of the medley, Curse of the Pharaohs, I think this song is absolutely badass, and I love that it employs this, um, you know, Tutankhamun, Imhotep, you know, awakened demon sort of imagery, we get these ancient pedal points, this riff is so familiar, to go back to Megadeth, think like Skin of My Teeth and stuff like that, you know, every fucking metal riff that just uses an open A with some triads over the top, but the the, the melodies here are really, really nice, Yeah, and the song's really poppy and really catchy, and it does remind me of Hit the Lights, just with the flexing the groove in the chorus, you have been hit. down and down, like that, it just has a nice kind of patterning underneath, the don't touch, never ever steal, unless you're in for the kill, James backing himself up with the vocals, I'm pretty sure I can hear Jason on the BGVs here as well, and the band are just having a ball here, the solo I worship, the way it has that kind of, that descending legato trail above the staccato chords, Kind of, a, kind of a, like an alarm, a siren careening off. And there's a call and response with James and his vocals as well. And, and Kirk's just really giving it. He's really, you know, inhabiting that lead guitarist role here. I love very groovy, very serpentine. You know, there's a sense of dislocation to it. There's a sense of unease. And I think Metallica really weaponized the song because as good as the riffs are, and as much as I am slowly acclimatizing to King Diamond's vocals, I much prefer the Hetfield Grit that James brings to this I think it just legitimises it modernises it a bit more and it makes it heavier it kind of makes it a bit more successful in its aims in my opinion you know it's fun to look back to the originals as well because obviously the band are sort of cherry picking the best bits from each song and there's so much cool guitar work in the Merciful Fate stuff especially on this Curse of the Pharaoh song on Melissa long harmonised guitar parts like um, Andrew was saying before with Judas Priest's influence we then get into Corpse Without a Soul which has a kind of similar riff to Curse of the Pharaohs but a kind of melody to this, it's absolutely fantastic, to listen. yeah, this is a very repetitive song, but James kind of embellishes the vocals, I'm a corpse, I'm a corpse, like, it's great to hear James call himself a corpse, anyway, Satan has taken it out on me as well, being trapped in his spell, tonight, I'm going to hell inside his spell, and, um, you know, again, it's not fucking WB Yeats over here, but, the guys are having a ball, the guys clearly worship this sort of music, and they really, really do it justice, you know, it's really impressive, they've definitely taken a lot of time, I think the guitars sound immense as well, I don't think they even really tried to go for anything reinventing the wheel here on Inc. but it really succeeds, I mean, there's a lot of variety of guitar tones throughout the two discs, but on this Merciful Fate, oh wow, wow, so good, you know, we're in this Dokken, as I say, Bullet Boys, Striper, who... uh, Did anyone know Striper, that weird Christian heavy metal glam band that would, like, throw out Bibles and stuff? Um, They're actually not a bad band. The whole thing reminds me a little bit of Sonic Adventure. I don't know if anyone played that Dreamcast game, or kind of grand 90s anime. You know how they always have this kind of 80s guitar in the background? Like, it just feels like... uh, The tone is terrific. There's a really cool classic solo as well. The song uh, retreats, the tides pull out and Kirk rises and allows the groove to build back underneath him. There's so many money riffs. You know, Metallica really seized on the beating hearts of each piece and, and amalgamated it into a worthy whole. Then into Into the Coven, which is probably my least favourite section. It's not, not to say that it's not very good, but it's, you know, problem with a lot of this music that can get quite samey quite quickly and not really too memorable with Into the Coven Again, you know, there's really fun lyrics here um, to hear James exploring, talking about put on this white coat, take this white cross and go to the center of the ring, come into my coven and become Lucifer's child, and then Into Evil which is their most popular song according to Spotify this is a song that opens Melissa this sounds very much like Phantom Lord to me like I just hear that main riff in the main riff of this song it's very repetitive in a good kind of way Kirk finally gets to get his war out on this track as well he presents like a kind of bamboozling lead that sears and stings there's some real melodic energy within it that endows the track and and yeah big up Kirk on this track I think he fucking kills it really impressive set of solos and that drill sergeant bark of Hetfield is at the forefront and just makes for merciful fate to be such a treat with a lot of the garage ink stuff i just it wasn't necessarily my rotation metallica wise before this podcast like i was familiar with all the trucks as i say but this one has risen to some of the top like i this this has risen to one of the top songs that i enjoy like honestly it's a thrilling ride and then we go back into the satan's full riff before it closes out just to give it a bit of finality and conclusion So listen to this track then. You don't have to be a genius to see why Merciful Fate was such a giant influence on Metallica. They're kind of kindred spirits to a certain extent. They both worship the riff. They both have progressive tendencies. They both are very original within a very defined genre. But um, some people weren't happy with Merciful Fate or Metallica. This comes from Mick Wall's book. This comes from Kerry King of Slayer. It wasn't just Megadeth that now felt comfortable at having a pop at Metallica in the music press. Kerry King of Slayer taunted Kerrang, calling it the Metallica mag, before adding pointedly, too many bands have started to sound commercial who started out heavy, specifically citing Merciful Fate and Metallica. I mean, whatever. It's still kind of heavy-ish, but... Getting too heavy is kind of boring to me, Kerry. But, you know, apples and oranges and all that. Some people like Reload. King Diamond have continued their association with the band. They even played the whole thing on stage with the boys at the 30th anniversary. And the boys have actually played it eight times, um, including other times with the band as well. I think Merciful Fate supported them on the re-touring, Paul Retouring Me tour with Monster Magnet as well, which is a really great gesture. And Stefan Chirazi interviewed King Diamond. He said, What did you think when you first heard the Merciful Fate medley on Gary Jink?" King Diamond said, quote, Lars called me and told me about it. I had no clue they were doing that. It came from left field. Lars and I were on the phone and he asked, how's it going? We just talked about this and that. He told me about the tour they were doing. And then out of nowhere, he said, hey, I have something I'd like to play for you. OK, I know you've been in the studio, man. I'm dying to hear what this new stuff is going to sound like, I told him. Then he starts to play the medley. I was about to drop my chair to the floor. What? Are you kidding me? Whoa, this is amazing, I told him. But what the hell? They had not even talked to the publishers yet to try to get the rights to cover the songs. He played it for me straight from the studio and wanted to hear my thoughts about it. The version of our stuff that they'd done was done so well. They did their thing, and it was very true to the music. James did not sing falsetto like I did, but there was that junk that he put into creating the mood that needed to be there. Hearing it still blows me away. And then Stefan says, but nobody could sing those songs better than you. And he says, no, probably not. But that's also why it's so much more amazing to hear it that way because of the way James approaches it. It works so good that James and I can sing at the same time on stage in our own way, and it works. It fits. Then also speaking to Classic Rock magazine, King Diamond was asked, how often have you sung the medley of Metallica on live on stage? Quote, I've sung it with them at least three times, once in Italy while touring in 1999, and the last time was for their 30th anniversary live show in 2011. That was my first time playing live after my heart surgery. On one occasion, Lars phoned while I was buying a car, asking me if I wanted to do the medley live the next day, so I flew home in that new car, and I ran in and put their version on, because it's different than ours. They have chosen certain verses to play. I can't just say I'm singing a part of this and a part of that, it's really their own take on it. And also in August two thousand and eight, King Diamond were asked by Metallica, King, and also in, two, in also and also in August two thousand and eight, King Diamond were asked by Lars uh, if they'd be willing to participate in the Guitar Hero game, which still needs to do an episode on. I've never actually played it myself, but um, I know someone got in touch wanted to do that, and I can watch a few Let's Plays. Uh, or it requested the original masters for two of the band's songs, so they could be used in the game. Unable to locate them, King Diamond suge- suggested... King Diamond suggested to Activision that the band re-record the songs, and as a result, King Diamond, Hank Sherman, Michael Denner, Timmy Hansen, and Bjorn T. Holm reunited to re-record the songs Evil and Curse of the Pharaohs. King Diamond was apparently also made into a playable character in the game. And as we always do on this show, we open it up to you guys, the listeners, at Metallica Pod, and uh, got a few tweets back. Ralph says, love this, in reference, of course, to Merciful Fate. I took something that I liked musically but wasn't crazy about vocally and turned it into an absolute beast of a song. Definitely one of the highlights of Garage Inc. to me. Yeah, I certainly agree, Ralph. Dave says, Top 20 moments for sure. Savvy Bloody Podcast. Rye says, If you came to it like I did and went back to the original after, it's definitely a shock to the system to hear King Diamond's vocal. Yeah, it certainly is. Almost comical. Almost comical. But almost comical. But then, once it sets in, you realise how amazing a unique King Diamond is. Also, that's got to be Jason slaying the background vocals, right? Uh, Samuel, Veal, Master of Puns, is so fucking cool. And Max is amazing. I like how James could cut corners for the screaming parts. So yeah, they played it eight times. Um, the la- first time they played it was in 98 in Toronto, Canada. They also played it the last... The last time was December 7th, 2011. That was the anniversary shows. They also played it in 2008 for OzFest at Pizza Hut Park in Dallas, Texas. And a few other times, there's a really cool version of them playing in New York that I watched before doing this episode. And um, as they're getting into the different sequences, when there's pauses, when they go into different riffs, such as the, uh, you know, Corpse Without Soul break, James turns to the crown, saying, you're not out of hell yet, or something like that. <laughs>
6: 12 and moonshots burst out at you from the hiding place. Miss Karen and Susie Dill would find themselves at Four Winds Bar.
0: And one of the things I like to do, Brady, normally is to kind of consider the band they're covering, you know, why this band, why this song, what sort of influence it had. And, you know, it's fair to say you look at some of the bands on here, you see like Merciful Fate, Black Sabbath, Leonard Skinner, you're like, okay, yeah, no, I can see that kind of elements of the band, Metallica's personality, but Blue Oyster Cult are a little bit of a different proposition.
10: Yeah, and they're a band that they've covered. Well, at least James um, by himself. They're a band that they've covered two more times with um, the veteran, of the Psychic Wars from the uh, Bridge School um, acoustic show they did a few years mm. ago, and uh, James and Jerry Cantrell uh, joined together on stage for an acoustic show. Um, I can't. Was it last year or two years ago? And they played uh, "Don't Fear the Reaper." Oh, nice. Um, so it's a band. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 really good. Like you check it out if you haven't had a chance to um, find it on YouTube. It's a really good. Um, James and J- Jerry's voice go really well together on the song. But yeah, it's a band that you wouldn't think on the hierarchy of bands that Metallica you would think would cover. They're not really high up on the list. They kind of make sense. I, I remember, I, I think I read it in some interview on a, in a magazine a few years ago, um, and it was. Right. The magazine came out right around the time Garage Inc. came out and the interviewer specifically Mm -hmm. asked, so like why Blue Oyster Cult? And Jason Newstead said um, they were a band that toured all the time. And so as a kid, I guess he got to see them a lot, a lot more frequently than other bands that he probably would have wanted to see. So they've kind of always been, I guess, in their collective creative mind in the background somewhere. And I guess Mm -hmm. they just decided Mm -hmm. to pay tribute to that.
0: Yeah, it. it I mean, for me, Blue Oyster Cult felt like a band Cliff would like, like you know, they kind of have that sort of slightly that proggy, atmospheric,
10: yeah, proggy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, any anytime you have keyboards or something like that, I guess like the the first adjective that is used is atmospheric. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, mean, I guess it's kind of cliche to say that. So if you're a hardcore Blue Oyster Cult fan listening to this, I'm sorry if that's. Uh, <laughs> if you're tired of that adjective but i mean it's it's one great way to describe them i mean they're kind of weird they they write about weird stuff um i really love their first album and Mm. i think i think uh astronomy is on their third or fourth album i think it's on their
0: second (laughs) actually
10: um oh second yeah it's the final song on there yeah and you know this song it's it's probably one reason why i respect metallica so much as a cover band Hmm. Because mm-hmm. I mean and and I hate to bring this up, but you know, Chris Cornell's, you know, recent passing. Yeah. And you, you see you see all these bands and musicians pay tribute to him by singing songs like Black Hole Sun, like um uh Spoon Man, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the the radio hits that you hear all the time. And this song, Astronomy, while it's it's kinda up there. Um, in the Blue Oyster Cult um, catalog. It's one of their more well-known songs, but it's not Don't Fear the Reaper, and that's why I kind of I like Metallica's their mindset when they want to cover a song. They're not going to do the inner Sandman of that band. They're going to kind of go deep into their catalog and try and find a song that they can mold into their own, and they did a really good job on this song, I think. Mm, yeah yeah entirely it's a
0: quite yeah just very surprising number to hear them cover and you know it wasn't a song that i was too familiar with before doing this episode to be honest with you i'd sort of heard it on the sort of shuffle of of garaging and stuff but often kind of remembered it being almost quite slight and you have that sense at the beginning of sort of far off sounds. it's almost ambient at times um you know kind of that music box aping a aping sort of thing the song doesn't really kick in until those very very uh, <laughs> american almost the way hetfield strums and it's sort of you know doing it boom like you know the kind of pulling back against the strings There, the the bass lingering around uh you know it does have quite a sort of um you know evocative vibe to it
10: yeah um first of all i think garage inc's production is probably the it's my personal favorite of anything Bob Rock ever did with the band, and right. I know the Black Album sounds. The Black Album, for what they were trying to do, I mean, the three rhythm guitars and then the lead guitar at the same time, I mean, as a guitar player, I love that really hard, chunky sound. But overall, Garage Inc., just, I think it really it brings out the best in each individual member. Mm-hmm. And out of, every, out of every song on the, the first CD on um, Garage Inc., Astronomy is I think the song, and I've always thought this, the song that every single player in the band really shines. I mean, you've got Jason's bass tone, which you can clearly hear throughout the entire song, which is kind of sadly you can't say that in every about every single Metallica yeah. song. And it really adds to the um the ambience, as you said. The volume swells at the beginning are really great, and probably the thing that shines the most is either Kirk's lead guitar, um, his soloing at the end of the song, or James's vocals. It's it's a song where at the time when it came out we hadn't really heard James sing like that you kind of heard him sing differently on Low man's lyric on reload but mm-hmm. he didn't go that far into what he does on astronomy and it's he does a, an, a fantastic job and the harmonies that he recorded the overdubs are just it adds so much to the song and it's such a great listen. Mm, mm, yeah it it is actually he does have that kind of soft spoken kind of way to his voice and that
0: you know I, the experimentation of this track is something i really respect as well they kind of went for a slightly you know less by numbers number here and it, and it works well what are your thoughts on the um it's quite basic but i can't deny how effective you know the guitar if na na. yeah um it,
10: it's funny if you listen to the the blue oyster cult you know they're the original song. Mm. For what it is, it's great. Obviously, I heard the Metallica version first. When you hear the Blue Öyster Cult version, it just sounds so thin and weak. And mm. I mean, there are reasons for that. I mean, obviously, yeah, this yeah. is a twenty or thirty year gap in between recording. But and if and if you just prefer you know more hard rock sounds, you're going to like Metallica. If you like more classic rock, you're probably going to go Blue Öyster Cult. But um, it's definitely it's definitely an example of how Metallica how well they can cover a song. Because if you heard the the original version first and you knew that Metallica was going to cover it, you would probably probably be a little hesitant to think, "Oh, this this I don't know how this is going to work." And they certainly make it work because it just constantly builds and builds and builds mm-hmm. until that chorus. Where it, and you know anytime James says "Hey" really hard on a you know on a recording, everyone's <laughs> going to be excited about that. And right. the power chords, uh, the bass guitar kind of echoing the guitar riff that they that doesn't necessarily happen on the original version mm. is a really nice mm. accent and yeah they just i mean i've said it a few times i guess already they just really made it work on this song yeah they really did i agree yeah they definitely metallicify it
0: uh, in a certain way here, yeah. James going hey, and sort of the riff coming in uh, much heavier as well. I I don't know if you caught as well. The, I I quite like the use of the riff, but when they descend the riff, so it goes. It's the same riff, but on the fretboard. You know, any guitar player knows you can sort of play a set of notes anywhere. You know, multiple positions, and it kind of goes here from the sort of high twelve to the sort of you know the low one of the E. And I really like that kind of na 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 na. The song kind of adds anti- something. metallic doesn't really do something that is a bit more of a proggy kind of uh, you know. Know, inflection there to inhabit and you know the song as well is very classic in his 70s mold as well it rests you know it does build like you say but then it gets back to more of a, a you know a slower pace and what, what you know the song itself the original song i watched a live video of it today and it has a great rendition by their lead guitar player then the real stinging lead like what what are your feelings on kirk's playing on this song
10: you know and i kind of said it earlier about how every i think every um member of the band shines in this um song yeah. kirk really I mean that ending solo is I mean for lack of a better word is it's fucking awesome. Right. It just it keeps going and it's not very kirkish. It's it's not it's not the same, you know, 12 to 14 and you kind of go up and down on the strings on the on the fretboard mm. as, you know, as mm. he's kind of devolved into now that he's older. Um, it's a little it's it's a little different here and there. It's not as predictable, but it just keeps going and going. It's like the solo that that does not end. And sadly, the song fades out and you don't get to see how it ends. But um, Kirk really shines on this on this song. And um, I mean, like, like you said, the kind of proggy, like the send on the fretboard. Uh, sadly, because of that and because of how the song is structured, I, I don't think we'll ever hear this song live. It's, it's a song that I don't think Metallica could probably perfect in a stadium atmosphere mm. i mean this mm. is definitely a song that if they ever want to do an acoustic version of it they would probably make it work but i don't think we'll ever because of the elements of the song i don't think we'll ever probably hear it live
0: and it's a very i mean lyrically <laughs> it's a very interesting song isn't it um very complicated song very dense um this is just uh, a quick little bit of research i did so speaking of the album itself it's from secret treaties by Blue is the Cold, which is their third album i should say you were correct not their second uh, began as a concept album based on the character Des Denova, who appears in Astronomy. You can spend a lot of time with headphones on trying to figure out what's going on in this song, but Perlman explained when he spoke with Enemy in 1975. Um, so basically, at this time, Perlman was kind of like the band's manager and this poet, and he says that, quote, it's New Year's Eve and Des De Nova walks into the Four Winds Bar, which was a real place. He plays the game with two girls. It has to be completed in the six hours from midnight till dawn, because he can't stand the light. It's sort of corrosive. There's a parallel with The Rose, which is similarly overfilled a symbol of overrightness and decadence the dog is Susie's familiar and the carrier of starry wisdom from the actual dog star lovecraft had this term starry wisdom cult which was so apt i had to use it i mean this isn't
10: typical sandman nothing else matters kind of fodder (laughs) yeah it's definitely not something james would probably write down and uh I think it's it's really a, it's really a conflict in between. It, it, it's it's another reason why it's so interesting how this song I think really does well. Mm. I mean, from that what was it? The making of the Black album, not not the year and a half, ten years later, where they kind of revisit. It was the it's the it's the special where Jason did like a few days. But James kind of when he's mentioning writing nothing else matters, he says that he's not like one of these musicians that writes a poem and it eventually turns into a song, mm. and. That is I, that is specifically what happened on astronomy originally, right. and James, it, it's it doesn't sound weird when it comes out of his mouth. It like his voice, it it still works in 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 such a way, and it's kind of hard to explain. But hopefully, I'm conveying it in a yeah. manner that you kind of are following along. But uh, yeah, uh, well, everything you just said, I remember growing up listening to the song and kind of understanding what some words were kind of not yeah. understanding what other words were but then like actually sitting down and reading the lyrics and just going what right <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> i agree i agree yeah i kind of um i was certain certain images hit me you know sort of um the the acid and oil on a madman's face um and stuff like that and like sometimes you kind of i think i know what that means i know you'll soon be married and you'll want to know where the wind comes from is that kind of like i don't know sexual awakening perhaps I, I you know i don't i don't really know where this plays for but there's a lot of haze as well as a lot of maniacal stuff here along with the kind of more complex two doors locked and windows barred one door left to take you in the other just mirrors it like what the what what does that mean um you know yeah, it, is, it, it is it is quite a bit of a puzzle
10: it's definitely from seventies drug-infused rock oh, yeah. and roll, oh, yeah. to say oh, the yeah. least.
0: <laughs> don't need to make if it don't, if it if it's making sense. If it's not making sense, dude, is there sort of uh, their sort of a- a- outro there? But you know, it's it's a fun number altogether. It's a good showcase for the band, uh, you know, and it's you know it's long, but they, the songs were long, and I think they do kind of update the song to kind of justify its placement. I mean, altogether, what are your thoughts on astronomy?
10: It's one of my favorites on the album. It's probably, because it kind of depends. It depends on what mood I'm in when I'm listening to Garage Inc. Uh, Merciful Fate's really fun just because there's 900 riffs and that's packed in that medley of a song. Whiskey in the Jar is a really fun song just to kind of sing along with all your friends while you're having a beer or something. But Astronomy is definitely a song that, when you're in a certain type of mood, it just really kind of speaks to me and musically, not necessarily lyrically, obviously we just kind of had fun with that, but musically it's such an interesting song and it's so unique compared to the rest of their catalog, even, even unique to the rest of their cover songs. And, you know, it's just, it's just a fun, it's just a fun number to kind of sing along to when you're, you know, driving in the car for a few hours or, um, like I'm doing right now, doing laundry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: so you were saying you were getting into metallica look like around the reload time you know cognizant of the memory remains video etc so do you remember um whiskey in the jar like that video dropping yes and
7: it's funny that you mentioned the video um i don't remember i didn't remember the video until i watched it yesterday right and when i watched it i'm like holy shit this video had to have been banned right yeah it was pretty it was pretty-, pretty risque yeah yeah uh house party uh you know a bunch of drunk girls very very uh, sort
0: of american pie but a bit more x-rated it's definitely x-rated <laughs>
7: um and, and metallica's just playing throughout the whole thing they're like you know nonchalantly they're not uh conversing with any of the the girls in no. in the video and uh um i think i remember seeing it but they they aired it once and then they were like that's that's it we're gonna save it for you know after midnight spots. So mm-hmm. I, I remember, I remember the song because I remember Garage Inc. and I remember loving the song at the time, and I'll get into to why in a second. But um, you know, it, it was less because of the music video and more because just the the album as a single at the time.
0: Mm-hmm. And I mean, this this song derives uh, from some of the greats in Fin Lizzy, one of my all time favorite bands. Do any of the Pearl Jam guys rock with Fin Lizzy? Th- actually yeah has um, eddie like ever rocked a lizzie shirt or i don't think no. he has the the best okay so there
7: was a there was a time they played in ireland and they actually did the boys are back in town
0: yeah that's that cool. was i didn't know they did yeah. that that's cool
7: yeah and there's another song that i think mike tagged off of ledbetter at one point mm. i can't remember what it was i'm gonna have to go back and okay. uh maybe i'll tweet it to you guys after the episode yeah, yeah, uh yeah. but yeah i there are loose uh, Thin Lizzie ties. They're more of a um, they're more a cheap trick, guys, from that sure, era. Sure, but, sure. But, uh, th- yeah, I think they're into Thin Lizzy, too. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, so Lizzie, uh, I've done an episode, actually, on the relationship between Fin Lizzie and their influence on Metallica, and I did a lot of my own Fin Lizzie history in that chat. That was a really fun sort of solo episode about a year ago or so. So definitely go check that out if you want some more sort of background uh, to my adoration of the band, which I know I've referenced a lot on this show. Yourself, Randy, are you a Lizzie fan at all, or...? it's
7: just it's an era that kind of passed me by Mm -hmm. my dad was really a 60s guy my brother was really a 90s guy you could listen to the albums
0: now though like
7: oh i'm sure yeah i'm sure i would listen to it and i'd probably be i'd probably enjoy it but like my soon-to-be wife who actually during this is probably uh you're probably airing this and she'll be my wife uh she Her father is from that era where he loves stuff like Thin Lizzy and America and Uh things of, uh, and that type of era. Uh, but you know, I grew up with Beatles. I grew up with Rolling Stones and, you know, very fringe, you know, the who and Zeppelin, uh, but it was more, you know, Clapton stuff, even Eagles and stuff like that. So that era of rock and roll sort of passed by me a little bit. And, you know, I, I, I can't say that I know within Lizzie's whole catalog. I'd be lying to you if I did, but um, I, I know enough where I can, I, can, I can rock out to within Lizzie's song for sure.
0: So... You know, this song, it's, it's obviously a cover of Lizzie, but it's kind of a cover of Lizzie's version because the song is like an old Irish traditional song. Um, you know, it mentions like counties like Cork and Kerry, and uh, it's about a highwayman. And I think it kind of basically got popular, popular through um, the Dubliners recording it. Sure. Sort of like a, mm-hmm. a, a folk band over there. But, um, you know, it's certainly a different version to the Lizzie version. And I will say, I will just put my cards on the table now, I do think the Finn Thin Lizzy version is infinitely better.
5: Wow.
7: Okay. I I think they're they're just two different styles of oh, yeah. just music in general. And uh, what what I'll say about the Metallica version is that they don't try to go all out to be a thrash. It doesn't sound like a thrash metal version. They try to keep as true to Thin Lizzy as humanly possible. And obviously with the distortion and all that, uh, it's it's harder to have that same groove that Thin Lizzy has mm-hmm. with the song. But this it's still you know I, I feel like. That way, with a lot of the Garage Inc. songs, they're trying to stay as true to the bands as humanly possible. Except for Tuesday's Gone, that's complete shit. I can't listen to their version of Tuesday's Gone. Really? We just started that. I I, I didn't think it was that bad. I I just got to get it out there. I thought I I just think it sounded like trash, and I I love the original. Oh yeah,
0: love the original. Yeah, definitely. I mean. Yeah, it's some of the subtleties are sacrificed that I love from the original, you know, such as I totally understand why they did this because the actual single version of the Finn Lizzy version did this where they cut off the opening solo the Eric Bell solo yeah. which is this ringing chiming wonderfully wide exploratory thing that harmonises itself kind of before we had Gorman and Robertson on the dual leads and Gary Moore and stuff like that and Lizzie were always kind of this you know real guitar focus centric band and it, that, that's gone you know go listen to the original for that Eric Bell was stupendous on that but it owns the bam 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 bum, and rather than being a kind of inquisitive acoustic stab I'm not saying this is a, you know, a, a black mark against the song, but in the Metallica version, it's kind of more of an anvil slam. You know, it's a bit more obvious, and it gathers you in, and it does have this gallop, like you say. What do you make of this intro as the song begins?
5: Um,
7: you know, it's funny, because you listen to the Thin Lizzy intro, that's one of the things I wrote down. I'm like, this is straight out of the Blue Oyster Cult playbook. Yeah. This is, like, 80s reverb, you know, intro. Like, they, people don't write... Bands don't write songs like that, no, even in the nineties and the eighties, they
0: don't write songs Mike like McCreedy that. Mike McCready don't play like that? Like
7: um, well, Mike McCready has his own style. We won't get into Mike <laughs> McCready on this show, but uh I have said he's uh,
0: overrated,
2: dear
6: people, him.
0: but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very um, harsh on Kirk on this show. I have a th- I'm jealous of lead guitar players, I think, deep down. <laughs>
7: uh but this metallica version I, I feel like when you're comparing the two the to metallica to thin Lizzy, thin Lizzy is kind of more um i wouldn't say it's like being in a pub but maybe like kind yeah. of like an outdoor venue and metallica really from watching the music video it sounds like it's a house party song
0: sure sure definitely yeah they, they and i don't want to keep comparing between the thin Lizzy and whatever but sure yeah, the yeah. the song the song itself does have its own character it still has uh, you know the everything from the song really the instrumental interludes um what it lacks is in the verses on the lizzie version you know phil's voice he has such a theatrical tender uh, sorrowful voice and i sure. love the guitar behind it <laughs> like, it's beautiful the way it uses the open string is uh, is fantastic but but yeah going into the metallica version it has um you know an, an aggression here and what, what do you make about the the sound of the guitars themselves
7: it sounds again distorted, and it sounds kind of—it sounds like it belongs in a room full of drunk people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, as far as like what Kirk is doing on it, I don't think he's going that far off from what Thin Lizzy was doing, just right. a little bit faster pace, a little bit faster tempo. But really, you add in that little flare of you know, da do da da, yeah, 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 and that. <laughs> brings the metallica yeah. to that song. It's like that part to me is so identifiable that um you know the Thin Lizzy part it's just it's so much more melodical, and then when you get to Metallica they're straightened to the point and they're like all right we're we're kicking the door down and uh we're you know we got the distortion going.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Yeah and I mean, there's, there's so much about this song that I do really enjoy. You know, the, the aping of the main melody, dun, 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 dun. they just make it fresh. It almost sounds like a "kill 'em all" kind of thing they'd throw on the top of a riff or something. <laughs> like, I don't know how they do it, but it just it feels in a different direction, but still ultimately Lizzie and Hetfield, as you say, is embellishing his arse off, and he has some great yes. lyric. He has some great lyrics to grapple with, like the story to this song and the way it is told is pretty unforgettable for me the story's
7: fantastic i mean you got uh, a highway man and he's obviously he's a bit of a he's a wee bit of a drunk yes. and he, he goes and he robs the the official uh, you know uh, reading the stories about this over the years they, they've kind of changed the lyrics it's kind of like an old wives tale where you know it gets passed down and and you know people kind of like playing telephone where mm-hmm. you change a little bit of the story as you go along uh so you know he Uh, He robs an official, uh, which makes it really, it made it really popular in colonial America because... Of the uh, the robbing of a British official that was that was really uh, that was popular for them. Uh, then he goes back home and he, he wants to uh, embellish in his riches with with his uh, with his wife Molly or they, they don't specify whether she's a wife whether she's a lover yeah. but he obviously wants to do everything for her and he's so enamored by her and and I don't know if he's just trying to prove himself or if he's trying to um provide for her and obviously she doesn't take to it very well and she leaves him. And that kind of leads to I don't know if later in the song it's it's a setup where uh he you know goes back to Molly's chamber and there's Captain Farrell. Yeah. He's Back there, and he shoots Captain Farrell. And there's been different versions that I read about that, where she replaced the gunpowder in his gun with sand, and they capture her and and they take him to jail. But um, I'm not. What do you What do you think about that? Do you think that that was a that was a trap that she set him up?
0: I don't know. I, yeah, I think Molly is maybe a floozy that he's just tragically infatuated <laughs> with, who is at the whim of of anyone for the money that he so craves. And it's interesting Molly's chambers which became the Kings of Leon song that this is actually yeah. where they got it from. Yeah. Yeah.
7: That's, I, that's a great Kings of Leon song. I, I love early Kings of Leon. you oh, right. Yeah.
0: I think Kings, Kings of Leon up to the fourth album are good. And then, then they soured for me. Yeah. I don't, have they even put anything out? They've done recently? loads. They've done like three or four more albums and it's just okay. real bloated millionaire folk, like kind of mm. rock. Like, like it's just, it's so smug and self-satisfied and, and so nothing. Like I, I, I you know, my party, black thumbnail, like Raout like they wrote some good songs. right California waiting I
7: remember being a fantastic song that, yeah. that was on my playlist for years. Uh, but uh, um, I mean, yeah this this version with Molly she's uh, she's kind of tricked him and then you know at the at the end he's like, well, some men like a fishing, but I like a sleeping and then I want to sleep with Molly. That's mm-hmm. what I desire. but now I'm here in jail ring uh now that's that's really interesting that lyric. yeah what do you what's your interpretation on
0: that? i i forever have never really known what that was um whack like whack is is money over here like getting whack okay or something so i always saw that as kind of you know uh currency earned filthy lucre in a sense as for the musharing. ring I think that's just folk song gibberish, you know? They didn't have as many words back then, so sometimes they just had to, had to make odd sounds.
7: Yeah, that's that's kind of, that's a lot of what I read at first, and then taking a deeper dive into it, I actually found one thing that sort of made it make sense, and I'm going to just take a look at my notes real quick and make sure that I have the perfect uh, verbiage for this. So uh, there's, there's a, a phrase in Gaelic, uh, Musharine Donamata and according to yahoo answers so okay. this is you know no nope. source right here Reliable, yeah. um that means whiskey made a fool out of me Ooh, i like that so you know it's it's kind of a play on words but it's, it's kind of got this yep. like um you know hi ho off to work we go like na ma doo da na da you know kind of <laughs> zippity doo da kind of kind of thing like oh it made a fool out of me but uh, whack for the daddy oh i got the money mm-hmm. uh it's still whiskey in the jar. and He's doing the whole entire thing. You can tell uh, that he's just
0: a, a drunk trying to get his pay. Mm-hmm. And it really... The, the actual lyrics themselves have this frontiersman expansionist view that for me really chimes with Phil Line as a whole and I've often imagined him as the protagonist of the song when he sings this and you know inhabits a lot of the characters there but um you know now some men like fishing and some men like fouling and some men like to hear to hear the cannonballer roaring like it just vivid imagery
7: yeah i think that that part with the cannonball roar and i think that's uh going back to kind of like you know uh ireland and 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 trying and and britain and i don't know sure, too much sure, about yeah, the history kind of, but yeah like mm-hmm. uh you know some men like to to partake in war and obviously this is a mil- military official that he robbed here yeah. and he's sort of on the other side he's fighting for ireland he's uh you know um where the Again, I'm not too crazy on the history. I just know yeah. that Ireland fought for their independence from from uh, from the UK. Uh, but uh, I, I think I think it's interesting that he they use that terminage. Uh, you know, to hear the cannonball rolling because. Of, there's war going on at the time i i, I contributed to that
8: uh-huh.
0: attributed to that right right yeah it's uh i just i, I just think it's just dealt with succinctly and kind of like you mentioned tuesday's gone before and it just has yeah. that tightness of phrase like I'm, okay i'm not comparing like you know ronnie van Zant to like the legends of the irish song craft but still <laughs> i think he does a great job on there and, and whiskey equally and the song's tight Altogether, really sonically, um what do you make of the rhythm section for it? I mean, the, the, there's a nice moment when it drops down to just James and Jason, for example, on the bass. I really, yeah,
7: I really dig the part at the end, like you said, the uh, some men like a fish and some men like a fallon They kind of they take it down just a little bit, and then right when they get to the mushroom damadu, uh, I'm gonna get that wrong every single time. Uh, uh, they start to build back up and then it kind of goes back into what the chorus was. And it's kind of this build walk for the Dario oh, yep, yep. and uh, it's it's great. I, I think it never loses its progress, even in uh, the section with the solo. It's it's still saying very steady, very on course and then that kind of takes you down. when it when it takes you down to that part you're, you you finally get a sense that the song is changing a little bit until the build until the end so i
0: i, I like it it's
7: very simple but it's very effective
0: yeah, yeah, it is. And there isn't much variety really in the track. Like um, you kind of, again, it's like one of these ones, like a lot of the covers, you learn the constituent parts and they repeat. Um, Here, because the guitar isn't quite as stinging as the original version, I think some of the licks get a little lost for me, but I know I'm biased because I was raised on the Lizzie version, so I just sure. have those certain impulses encoded there, so I can't really battle against that. But, um, you know, all in all, I think this is a really enjoyable version it's a very it's what you'd imagine a metallica version of whiskey in the jar was it's not faithful in a certain sense it did what the lizzie version does and kind of took it in a certain direction as well but using that as a blueprint and live randy which i know is what you care about most with every (laughs) band this song has been played quite a lot actually i was surprised 74 times so far um it was considered quite a lot in metallica world yeah, yeah, they're not like Pearl Jam in the sense where they'll just throw Yield in backwards in like you know fucking Winnipeg <laughs> or something. They won't, they won't do that. They'll have their set. It'd, it'd be like imagine Pearl Jam have the same set every night, but maybe like the fifth song is like the Yield slot, and they'll do two or three in that slot maybe. So we yeah. don't get that much variety. That being said, November seventeenth, ninety-eight. This was first performed Toronto in Canada, and last performed a few months ago in Ireland. Uh, that was at the Slane Castle, uh, June eighth, twenty nineteen. Yeah, that and that was a really good performance. And if you call that
7: uh i have not seen a live performance of the song i'm gonna have to go and check it out uh but um you know i I sort of take this vision of what i think metallica is live and i've never seen them live uh i sort of take this vision of what you know pearl jam does live and how metallica can do exactly what pearl jam does and i look at metallica set list and they're just like 16 to 18 songs long and i'm like you know what you guys can go for 25, you guys can go for 30. Mm. The fans would really appreciate it. I know they just did s and I, I, I didn't look at what the set lists were like for, for their new S&M that they just did. Uh, but, man, they could really... They had opportunities to juice up their live act, and they, they just never got around to it. And it, it, seems, it seems like their fans would have appreciated it, and it's just kind of disappointing that they didn't.
0: Yeah, I think it's maybe... Easier for Pearl Jam to do it, not only because they have shorter songs, but they have kind of songs that are less strenuous, perhaps. Like, you yeah, know okay. when you are throwing like a master of puppets down, that's going to take more out of your right hand than unemployable. And I just, sure. I, I, and I think Pearl Jam are a little bit of an anomaly, and you are lucky to be such a fan of such a band like that because pretty much no, okay, maybe like your Dave Matthews and your Grateful Dead and whatever, fish, yeah, fish exactly. But but Pearl Jam are a bit different because they're not really a jam band, so they're they're throwing like proper compositions up there
7: yeah it's it's really unique i mean again like you like you said unemployable can come into any set list and it can feel sort of natural uh but they have their mainstays they have their corduroys they have live even flow and they're kind of you know it's it's not uh that they're playing them it's sometimes it's what they're playing beforehand to get to that point and what they're doing after it and corduroy is actually a really good case with that Mm -hmm. because corduroy is very early in the set Uh, second or third song in at at the most part, depending on... uh uh, what they do, kind of, to to ease into the show, but then you can get Corduroy. I in Boston a couple of years ago got Corduroy to close an encore, and at that point you're obviously not expecting Corduroy because Corduroy is such an early song, so it's 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 out of your head. But then they go in, and they're like, you know what? Fuck it, we're gonna do Corduroy in in, in an encore, and we're gonna we're gonna kill the final part of, the, of that set, and it was one of the most. Unbelievable moments that I've ever seen live, just getting that and hearing that there and and the reaction of the crowd, knowing every single person there knows that this is something that they don't do. Obviously, you'll hear Corduroy at 90% of the shows, but hearing it in that spot is special.
0: I love that you're like bird watchers you no. Pearl jam live fans like you're just like yo this is a rare one I've spotted I've spotted the yield track like I love it I love Call the it passion
5: series collectors
0: Yeah yeah it's uh That's the term edits
7: for us I don't know
5: Where I'm going I just want to be
1: left alone
0: fan of skinnerd like are you big into this band Do, you know what's your opinion
11: uh, i'm not a big fan obviously i know the major tunes that are on classic rock radio for mm-hmm. the last 30 years yeah um but i've never been a big country rock fan if that's how you want to call them and and i'm also not super into the kind of southern man type of stuff
0: sure i mean th- that flag recently right very controversial
11: yeah, probably not something we want to get too into, but right. <laughs> it's not. Let's put let's put it this way: what they tend, to, what they seem to represent, is not something that I tend to support.
0: No, no, no. I remember, you're like a Johnny Marr <laughs> fan, right? I can, I can feel you being quite a long Absolutely, way. Absolutely, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Skinner. I I don't mind that that southern rock sort of crunk bayou. I, I mean, Doctor John's a bit of a far flung comparison, but you know that sort of feel that 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 they get. I I quite enjoy that and. I quite like the free guitar as soul. And I was thinking to myself before I did this episode, because again, yeah, I'm not a giant Skinhead fan either. I don't really know them that well. Although I must say, I have not listened to their debut in prep for this. And there are some good songs on that. And I'd never actually heard the song, Give Me Free Steps, before. But I know that's one of their more popular tracks. And the, the rhythm guitar on it is fantastic. It's got such a boogie to it. It's really been playing in my head this last week. But yeah, as with most things, because I'm a millennial, the way I discovered most... So, most bands inadvertently is through video games and through grand theft auto yep. and free Bird was on san andreas as so many other songs are <laughs> i believe it was on the station that axel rose was the dj of uh, k dust so that was always in the back of my head and then one of my favorite bands actually um i don't know if you're aware of them rick uh, drive by truckers yep yep sure so huge fan of that band and i think it's their second or third album basically their breakthrough album southern rock opera is all about Skinner um, you know both expli- oh. both explicitly kind of tells the story of the band like there's an early song called Ronnie and Neil and the final songs called angels angels and fuselage and it's kind of told from the cockpit as they're crashing into the swamp it's an amazing song oh. but it's also kind of it uses Skinner as like a prism to sort of dissect and skewer the south and you know I learned a lot of history from that they speak about like people like George Wallace for example mm-hmm. and you know it's, it's a really good record and, and it's all about Skinner so I I was kind of aware of Skinner and they've got loads of sort of Skinnered wrists they incorporate into the music and stuff like that but um I mean getting on to Metallica you know, James is born and bred in Downey but he always feels like a bit of a southern gent to me and, and it's not surprising that he'd they'd want to cover a Skinnered song you know
11: I completely understand that from both his angle and also like you said Skinner for whatever they are they have outstanding musical skill and their guitar. Uh, the way they use their guitars is certainly you, uh, something that's become its own genre almost. So so I can see a band kind of getting into that southern rock metal, uh, a, a metal band getting used to getting into that southern rock kind of boogie, like you said.
0: Mm-hmm. And I was doing a bit of research as well. And in 2004, um, this is from Blabbermouth, where basically Ozzy Osbourne was asked and James was asked to list their top 10 great songs of all time. And James put Freebird to the top of his list, Uh, quote, Freebird fit my life for the first 20 years on the road, not really getting too attached to stuff, living life for the moment and moving on. I mean, so I just thought this might have been like a discharged diamond head type thing, but clearly (laughs) Skinner'd mean a lot to Pop Ahead.
11: Yeah, and I, I i guess I'd say that's almost kind of an embarrassing answer for him, but right. <laughs> at the same time, you know, music moves people in different ways, and if that's what moved him, uh, I certainly understand that. Mm-hmm.
0: And we'll get into this, this cover then. So, you know, I know you've been a Metallica fan for quite a while, so do you remember first hearing this? You know, I'm guessing... Was it a bit of a surprise, perhaps, being on Garaging? Because I love how this song ends, and then we go into the More I See, which is a complete polar mm-hmm. opposite. You know, it really displays a dichotomy of the influences, I guess.
11: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I first came across this on the album. Um, I don't think I knew any of the, you know, heard any of the radio versions that led up to this or any of those things, live versions. I don't remember hearing them. Um, I, I personally think it's doesn't make sense that it's on this album, and even though it's, you know, we're talking covers. Sure. This kind of jammy live cover can fit in with all these super produced other songs just really stands out oddly to me.
0: Yeah, completely. I mean, you know, it's... it's not really faithful it's not really a reinterpretation it is this kind of loose barroom jam as you say and just a bit of history if people weren't aware so this was recorded um at the end of 97 uh, the 18th of december on don't call us we'll call you which is uh this is a sort of session on ksjo which is in san jose you know it's a real who's who of kind of the coterie of stars that surround Metallica, so we've got Pepper Keenan from Corrosion of Conformity with co-lead vocals, uh, Jerry Cantrell, of course, Alice in Chains on guitar, Sean Kinney on additional percussion of Alice in Chains, uh, Jim Martin, who goes by Fatso, I think he wasn't in Faith No More at this time, John Popper from Blues Traveller, uh, Les Claypool on Banjo from Primus, and most interestingly, Rick, Gary Rossington from Leonard Skynyrd, who you know was in the plane crash survived and is now the only original member who continues to play in the band. Yeah, I think that's
11: great, and I think that the interesting thing about that him him specifically being on the track that makes the album is you you almost wouldn't know it. No, um, if, if not from the song, not from a particular uh, part that they call him out on. I think at the end, you know, they 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 throw up some of the names, yeah. but really you wouldn't even know that he's there. And you think that if he's gonna be that link they might want to promote that in some way perhaps they did on the radio show and we just don't hear it on the album i don't know
0: well, it's funny you mention that because, you know, they've played this song a few times live, five times live, and they did it at the anniversary shows. And I don't know if you've read the comments on the YouTube, but every single comment is why the fuck. Because Gary's just at the back. <laughs> like, James James seems to be rocking out with Peppa Keenan way more. And, you know, Gar- Gary, like, I watched a documentary on Skin of Reese, really good one that got, um, I don't know, it was on, like, US television or something. Gary always mm. has that wide brimmed hat. He always seems like a sort of quiet dude back up. But the fact that he's there the fact that he was in that cheap little plane that Aerosmith didn't want to buy it was like on its last legs you know the plane where Ronnie Van Zandt and all the Steve Gaines died and stuff you just would have thought Hett would have made a bit of a bigger deal out of it I
11: completely agree I think that it's very interesting that he just kind of sits in the background, he takes a little bit of a solo here, and then he just fades back to the background again.
0: Yeah. it's a it,
11: That might have just been the way he was as a person, and didn't maybe, want to be called out.
0: No. Maybe so, maybe so. And obviously they extended the invite, so they, they weren't ignoring him on that front, and that, that just is his persona, and it's still really cool that he's there. But it's just kind of... I don't know, you would have thought he'd be up front, you know. He'd be sort of deified right. in that way, but, but, but he's not. But let's get to the uh, Garage Inc. tune uh, itself and i mean i I really, really like the energy in this song, and just like how how well are the guitars recorded in kind of a ragtag way, but the the instruments I think are captured quite brilliantly, they feel really alive in the room, you know. Yeah, I mean
11: I think that uh, and I thought, I came across a quote somewhere from James and I don't remember exactly where it was where he basically said that they gave it to their mixer and let their mixer do its magic to get the rate the, the version you mm. get on the album perhaps that, that was one of the things that they were able to do is, is find those that better guitar sound.
0: Yeah, yeah, because you know Skinhead are one of those bands you said earlier that kind of pioneered that triple guitar attack. And really balance the instruments well You know, unlike say, I don't know Iron Maiden, for example Which to be fair, Iron Maiden, they're kind of a metal band So all the, they're all playing the same riff, maybe doing a bit of harmonising Foo Fighters. I don't really like Foo Fighters, But they have free guitar players Which never made any sense to me Foo Fighters really should be a trio if anything like because no, no one's harmonising no one, no one's kind of filling out the lead but here they are here there's lots of different chords being strummed and <laughs> of course that like how can that not pull at your heartstrings? and also the no no like that chiming, like I don't know. I find this song quite emotional in a way.
11: I, well, I think that's supposed to be the case. I think they obviously tried to, based upon the lyrics and what, what it seems to represent. It certainly seems like they wanted the song to be an emotional heartstring. I will say, it, even though it's a live jam and that's going to drag it out a little bit, even the original is probably a bit too long Definitely. for the for the dynamics of the song. Um, even though there are certainly parts that stand out, and we can talk a little bit about them, but. I think that it just does drag on a little bit, and I think that really dra- makes it tough to, to maintain the energy mm-hmm. over the full nine minutes.
0: Yeah, yeah, I cannot deny that. Yeah, so, so the Garage Inc. version is nine minutes four, um, and Tuesday's gone on the original uh, debut, pronounced linen skin, is seven and a half minutes, so they add like an extra minute and a half on the top, but, you know, there is a kind of fade-out ending, and... Mm-hmm. You know, throughout, there's ad-libs, which is nice, but really gives it that raw feel, you know, are you guys ready, James is asking, and then they do the roll call towards the end, and you can hear some of them going, yeah, and kind of really getting into it and really head-banging and stuff. Like, what, what would you make of that, that kind of relaxed feel? Oh,
11: I think that shows how talented all the musicians that are in that room really are, and that they can just pick, even though the song might not be the most complex to play, just to be able to kind of pick it up, probably with very little, if any, practice, And just kind of get through it and take off different parts and 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 kind of blend that in seamlessly i think is obviously a a real talent
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and i i really like the bass as well in this version it's really earthy and wide it really pulls everything together from jason I agree. And it's certainly nice to have him get a bit of a
11: spotlight, even if he's not soloed in any particular way.
0: No, and you can see that on the Bridge School benefit as well. I think Jason's a real standout there. He's really in his zone playing it and and just just, just has some nice bass playing, you know, really kind of underscores a lot of the tension.
11: Right. And my favorite thing about the Bridge School benefit is Kirk's shirt. Yeah,
0: (laughs) he's got that Mark Knopfler (laughs) frilly, like, yeah, it's amazing. (laughs) Black and white country.
11: Oh, we're playing a country, a southern rock tune. Let me put on my country yeah, shirt. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, it is a little bit. Yeah, we get some James comedy as well there, where um he's talking about someone has Freebird and um you know asking for someone to push the stool in as well. Is that a patented het humor, right?
11: Exactly. And did you hear? Since we're on the Bridge School benefit, mm-hmm. did you see the Rolling Stone review about that show?
0: You know, actually, it's funny you mentioned that. I. I, I have covered that on the show before because with John Stone, we went through all the bridge school stuff. What, what was said? I can't okay. remember. I'll just highlight
11: that the group mm-hmm. recruited Alice James, guitarist, Jerry Cantrell to join them in an embarrassing, by-the-numbers version of Leonard Skinner's tuesday gone, Tuesday's Gone," tuesday Gone that inspired many in attendance to follow Tuesday's lead and head for the parking lot.
0: Right, yeah, I remember that. Wow. <laughs> Yow. That's rough. Yeah, that's... Ouch. <laughs> Christ. I'm not a big
11: fan of the tune, but that's rough. <laughs>
0: yeah, I didn't think it was... I mean, yeah... It, like, it can be a bit ponderous and, and, and self-serving, yeah. and it certainly is really, really long, and it's not like there's that many lyrics, but it, undeniably an anthemic chorus, right?
11: Oh, absolutely, and fun to sing along, and I can imagine, you know, a big kind of amphitheater in the 70s, uh, you know, a lot of people under the influence of different substances uh-huh. just kind of blaring along with it.
0: Yeah, yeah, Uh and in the in the garage ink version as well um cool to hear pepper taking a verse and James introducing him
11: yeah i mean i'm i'm not a huge corrosion of conformity fan but you know i had a period in the early 90s where they were kind of big in the yeah. alt, you know alt metal scene if you will and yeah, you know I, I followed them along for a little bit and I, I think he's a talented dude
0: he is he is actually i've i've tried to get into them by proxy through metallica and there are some songs that i like like clean my wounds I think the guitar sure. dueling in that song is really awesome, actually. But, yeah, they just, I don't know, there's a, there's a few bands like that where just the riffing's a little too monotonous for my tastes and the mm-hmm. songs get a little boring, you know?
11: Completely agree. Over, over the course of a couple albums, I just don't see the variation enough to really keep me interested no
0: no yeah entirely um and you know we hear lots of uh pathos being wrung out really through the guitars uh you know with the train rolls on towards the end everyone getting those big notes and the the fiddly licks and and and, you know all everyone having their own little moment but not always playing for the song it feels no one's kind of sticking ahead too much
11: Sure. I think I think the question I think I think you can probably debate that a little bit when you get to John Popper and his harmonica. <laughs>
0: it's a little long, yeah. <laughs> I mean people are vibing on yeah, it, but yeah. 54 seconds of harmonica
11: is more than anybody needs.
0: I don't think I've ever enjoyed a harmonica solo ever.
11: It it, it really isn't uh something that I ever got to. When I was around the early 90s again that that kind of um jam band resurgence that happened a little bit. I got uh-huh. a little bit into Traveler, but for the same reason, it's just... First of all, he's he's become a bit of a jerk in real life. Okay. Um, and at, at that time, you know, it was just too much harmonica for me to get used to.
2: <laughs> mm, yeah,
0: it's... Um... It's a bit like sort of keyboard solos, like Rick Waitman, John Lord, Jordan Rudess, that kind of stuff. It just, there's something about the sound. doesn't even matter the note choice or the licks. But even then, kind of harmonica solos yep. just build to a big wheezing sort of idea, doesn't it? Rather than anything too intricate or uh, or endearing. Yeah. And I mean, undeniably, the song's too long as well. I agree. I, 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 I've I listened to the song a lot over the past week. And I've got to be honest, around six minutes in, I'm twiddling the thumbs a little bit.
11: You know, I have written down here, if it was six minutes, it'd be tolerable.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Just you know, horrible.
11: Give everybody a, yeah, I mean, I think yep. that it's six minutes, you at least would have, uh, you know, kind of an end in sight. You get to six minutes in that song and there's still a whole other verse to go. And, and it, unlike a lot of, you know, Freebird is the most obvious example, but, and a lot of the Metallica quote ballads, you know, what makes them so interesting or at least somewhat interesting to me and a lot of people is, they might start out with a bit of a, a, a bit of a slow kind of melodical thing, but then at some point something kicks in or, or there's a dynamic shift. This song just even the original doesn't really have that. It kind of maintains the pace and the uh-huh. and the, and the same um, feel throughout. And again, it's I guess it's supposed to be a negative uh, a sad song in some respect. So so maybe that doesn't really fit the that wouldn't fit a different musical style. But but yeah, definitely even at a six minutes, I'd probably find it a little bit ponderous.
0: Yeah, 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 no entirely. And and one of the things that the original has as well as being slightly shorter is that the that warm uh, Rhodes piano, you know, throughout yes. That kind yeah. of, I don't, I don't know it gives it a kind of delicate kind of brown sugar layer that really works for me, I think it was Billy Powell actually, who also survived the plane crash and played with Skinner, I think he died in 2009 which makes Gary Rustin the last mm-hmm. surviving member and it's mad to think that Gary yeah. still performing with them and you know, you look at the front cover of the album, that classic cover of them with the lightning striking behind and you can see I think it's mm-hmm. Gary just sitting and then Ronnie's standing behind him and I think Ronnie was like 28 29 when when he like they're all so young oh yeah, right,
2: yeah. Such, oh, a, such a
0: crazy fucking like i was telling my girlfriend today about it and she doesn't really know his skin and I? I was like yeah like half of the band died like they didn't didn't play for like 10 years or something like that and um i mean i want to give a quick shout out as well to the skin podcast I can't say I've listened too much to the latest episodes, but he's doing a bit of an Alf Petalica thing over there, going song by song and doing his own narrative and stuff like that. So, you know, any listeners out there that are into Skinner, definitely check that out. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, guys, this is Tuesday's gone. There isn't much compositional difference between the first couple of minutes and the last couple of minutes. Um, We get loads of thank yous at the end. Um, Mm. You know, Lars can be heard saying, let's do that again as well. Yeah, it's okay, Lars. Take a break. Yeah, (laughs) And it sounds like, I only really heard this with the headphones on, it sounds like someone's kind of putting on a faux... Um, retard voice or something right at the end saying <laughs> thank you. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen that clip of John Lennon pretending to be disabled in the 60s. Oh, yeah. But um, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing I that did, as a 17 year old.
11: I'll, I'm going to go out of my. I'm going to take a guess and say that was uh, Les Claypool. Why not? <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Most likely. Most likely. Yeah. Or maybe Kitty
11: from uh, Alice and James. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's one of those guys. Yeah. They'd certainly find that funny. I'm sure. Punching down. Yeah. That's kind of that's kind of mm-hmm. their bag. But um, yeah. As I say, this was on the Don't Call Us, We'll Call You. Um, and there was four songs on this album, I believe. So there was Tuesday's Gone, and then Low Man's lyric, uh, Poor Twisted Me," and Nothing Else Matters. And, um, you know, I think, I gotta say, I do prefer Skinner's original. Uh, I think that original is just one of those songs that can't really be matched or duplicated in any way. Of course, Metallica and Co., you know, they weren't trying to do exactly that. This is a stripped down radio session homage. Um, but I, I don't know, it, it doesn't quite get there for me. I think it should be shorter. Um, there maybe should be more of a pronounced guitar solo rather than an anguished harmonica solo. But all in all, it isn't bad, Rick. You know, I don't uh, I certainly wouldn't say this is one of the worst things on Garage Inc. Like wink, wink, Mothead covers, wink.
11: <laughs> I know you're not a big fan of those.
0: No. Um, I, I probably would put it in
11: that bottom tier simply because it's so unlike the other stuff. And I think the interesting, you know, in in regard to this song and the 30th anniversary show version, even though again that's the whole length and what that one I think is actually the best version of the three that we're talking about, simply because it's got electric guitars, the solos are more meaningful, and uh, you know James is singing a verse, Jerry Cantrell sings a verse, mm-hmm. Pepper Keenan sings a verse. You know, you got a little bit more trade off that sounds more jammy but polished at the same time. So. I just wanted to kind of clear, make clear that I think yeah. that's if if that was available, even though obviously it wasn't at the time they made Garage Inc. That would have been the, probably a much more, I think, a natural fit for the rest of the album.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, you got Gary being ignored as well. It's got everything. You know? it's, got, <laughs> it's, got, it's got everything you could ever want for uh, for a Digital that has gone. It's got
11: horns apparently. Yeah, There's horns in there somewhere.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> um, and I appreciate it as well, because the version I saw was free of um, a watermark. But for years, whenever I've tried to watch the anniversary, it's always like, I think it was like Rocker or something. It was really a really officious watermark on front. So uh, yeah, that that, that has yeah. now disappeared. But as we um, as we always do guys reach out to you uh, on Twitter at Metallica Pod what did you think of this song Raul says I've got to say I've always enjoyed this cover by Metallica and they're all star friends since I originally heard it which I believe was on the radio during a Christmas special I dig the loose kind of jammy feel to it it stays fairly faithful to the original it sounds like the boys are really having fun playing this tune which is always a bonus nice moment to listen to them when they're not trying to be perfect Jamie who's coming on the show soon for Unnamed Feeling said it's bloody excellent John Bradshaw says absolute rubbish if I ever hear it again it will be too soon Scopes uh, oh, Skinnered Reconsidered here we go the Skinnered Podcast um, said I dismissed it early in my podcast because it didn't seem like a song that needed to be covered then I listened to it not bad at all Uh, Chabo says it's a great cover I love how James can change his persona vocal range with non-metal songs absolutely love Skinnered and Metallica hope they do another song in the future Sabbath Bloody Podcast saying, I love hearing James and Pepper trade off vocals. You can definitely see how much cadence James borrows from him heading into the load sessions, and it's just a killer jam. The roundtable thank yous always crack me up. Dante says, in spite of the players, it's more of a jam session than a proper cover. It's too long and dragged out. And finally, Fixer says, it's rough, but I still enjoy it. doesn't beat the original anytime soon, but I like how everyone sings in the chorus. Uh, Rick, any, uh, any final thoughts on Tuesday's gone?
11: I think the only thing I wanted I would just mention is that we didn't really t- touch on Jim Martin being there, and I think Jim Martin oh, is an saying. interesting, even though he doesn't have much to do. He's kind of in the background of all of these things. I think he's such an interesting link between Metallica and at that 30th anniversary show, you know, they had the talk where him and him and James talked a little bit about Cliff. You know, at the same time in '97, he puts out a solo album that Jason Newstead sings a song on. Mm. J- J- Headfield I didn't sings backup. I have to listen to that. Yeah, it's called uh, "Milk and Blood" cool. is the name of the album, and there's a song called "Fatso's World," and Jason actually sings the lead, and it sounds like you would expect Jason singing the lead. It's not a particularly good album or song, but you can get it on
0: YouTube. Yeah, I'm just uh, yeah, I've got it, up, I've got it up now. Yeah, um, yeah, came out October '97, and Hetfield's um, on backing vocals, you said.
11: Yeah, I'm not sure he's on backing vocals on that song. I think he's on another tune on that album. And but, looks- but yeah i think oh, but overall the song itself tuesday's gone is an okay cover version of a song that i wouldn't say i was super into it before and i just think it's weirdly placed
0: yeah yeah oh and um there's a Pogues cover on that fate on that jim on- oh really as well yeah uh, navigate that i have to listen to because yeah. that's got to be weird yeah definitely <laughs> uh- Dave, um, t- today is a cover of a really important band and a band that I've been getting more and more into. Kind of like with Budgie and Crash Course in Brain Surgery. Um, you know, Discharge are an, an awesome unit, hugely influential. Were you down with Discharge before you were aware of Metallica covering them? Like, have you gone on since to listen to them or?
4: As I was younger, I think we talked about it before, I was more into punk bands i was into the clash and i was into the exploited i was familiar with discharge but i wasn't i wasn't their biggest fan but as i've gotten older i've realized that they literally punted the door open yeah. for bands like uh napalm death or ent and uh for anyone that doesn't know ent they are um well, extreme noise terror like right. they're an old cross punk band lots of swedish bands took literally took the the blueprint Discharge's first album and ran with it for an entire career whether it's logo design sound drum beat there's a whole drum beat called the D
0: beat
4: which was popularised by Discharge which has taken off across many a genre but it's a very they're just a very influential band, yeah. and they're just a tiny little band from Stoke-on-Trent. They, they, yeah, they're from
0: Stoke-on-Trent. They're from where Slash was born. You know, yes. the, the, the Potteries, as they're known here locally. Um, quite a sort of innocuous little area. But you are right, yeah, they're so influential. It's quite crazy how influential they are. So they have the D-beat thing, which, just to say, is the um, kind of moathead buzzcock-style drum beat um, that was used yeah. early in their career. It basically became what a sub...
4: So,
9: last week
0: yeah, yeah, it became a subgenre of hardcore punk. Apparently, in Japanese, Brazilian, and Scandinavian scenes, especially. You mentioned the name as well, and that's another weird thing about Discharge. Uh, many bands, uh, quoting from Wikipedia, many bands followed Discharge' stylistic approach. They began using the dis prefix or yeah. the charge suffix in their names. Uh, many Re-char- examples include yeah disarm. yeah, disarm, Disfear, disclose, Dischug, recharge, keg charge, distraught. Apparently there as well and apparently it reached this level of fourth wall breaking metanus where this anarchist punk band in the uk i've not heard of them myself called active minds um in 1995 they issued an ep called this is getting pathetic which actually parodied a discharge song in it phenomenal so i That's mean they...
4: multi i'll take that and
0: Metallica you know one of these bands they always hark back to their heroes in brilliant types of ways and it's very cool as well I only kind of realised this the YouTube comments pointing this out to me about an hour ago that Garage Inc. opens with a Discharge song the first disc yes. and closes with one as well so it opens with Free Speech for the Dumb which we've already covered on the show uh, episode 55 with Russell Shoshtag, who was just recently on the show actually when we did this um, going to the North Carolina show on the worldwide Tour that was great and this closes it as well and, you know, let's get into the song, then. So the song starts with a very foreboding, charging bass. And it reminds me a little bit of Devil's Dance in the way that yes. there's a lot of chugging, a lot of feedback, the riff kind of building itself up.
4: It's a, like a powerful, neandering bass. It sort mm. of walks cross-legged along the riff. <laughs> like, you've no idea where it's going, but it's keeping you right. Mm. And then the riff comes in, and it's just great. And, and immediately, you, your eyebrows go up, and you're like, what's that? Oh, that riff. It, it doesn't stop. It's just mm. phenomenal. na na
0: na 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 Oh, it's just so addictive. It's such a sledgehammer.
4: It's a twirling riff yeah. like it's built for the power stance it's a front man's riff it is a, it is a front man's
0: riff. it's a riff that can carry a song it's you know it's a it's a riff that you can you could like it's one of those riffs that you know i felt the same way when i listened to like my bloody valentine when i was younger you you kind of don't know what's going on at first it's kind of this barrage of noise but when you orientate yourself in the song and kind of realize where it's stopping and starting it's just you know, it reminds me a little bit of Phantom Lord from Kill em All, or so many other Metallic riffs. I mean, you can see the influence on Kill em All here so, so clearly. But but yeah, I mean, I, I love this riff, Dave. I think it's killer.
4: It's one of those riffs, like you said, that you're not sure what's going on. And it sounds super cliche, but the first couple of times you hear it, you don't need to know what's going on because it knows what's going on in you. You're trying to work <laughs> it out. It doesn't give a fuck what you're doing. It's just going to keep going until you get with it. Yeah. And you do get with it. Yeah. yeah with everything the original band the discharge were fantastic yeah and metallica's cover they their two songs i think they're everything you would want from a metallica cover they don't change the song no they do it exactly as they would but as them and you get the whole band's personality coming through while well, staying true to the original i mean lars has got the db on just mm. full charge here it's Phenomenal as mm, well. really
0: stuff. Mm. Yeah, and you you're right, they don't really change the song. So, so when I when I when I to the song for this episode and that intro, I was thinking of Devil's Dance, and I was like, oh, this is this feels very reloady. But you listen to the original, and that's kind of what they were doing. Like, you know, that that that's the idea, it kind of led with that bass and then building through. And just to go back to Discharge as well, um, you know, they were just a giant influence on Extreme Metal. Uh, this mm-hmm. is from Decibel magazine that says, quote, There are a few bands who have had more influence over so many different scenes than Discharge this includes the first generation of thrash bands grind bands and hardcore groups Discharge's influence on heavy metal is incalculable and metal superstars such as Metallica Amphrax and Sepultura have covered Discharge songs in tributes um, apparently there's lots of early photos in the 80s of uh, James and Cliff wearing Discharge search, which is really cool um, you know Amphrax were playing Discharge covers as early as 1983 and um, yeah they've there really were sort of a a pioneering act and have you gone back and listened to the original much
4: yes i was listening to the original all last week and again today just because we're gonna do it so i was going over and did a little reading and i came across some of the covers the anthrax cover of protest and survive it's
2: pretty Mm. good
4: company with metallica sepultura took on a look at tomorrow protest and survive and hear nothing say nothing see nothing Mm -hmm. as did therapy covered that song which i did not know Yeah, one of the things that struck
0: me, one of the things that's very different about the song... Apart from the production, which, of course, you know, inevitably the Bob Rock production just sounds so meaty and the riff just sounds so vital in comparison to the original. The vocals, um, Cal Morris's vocals uh, from Discharge are more snarling, snarky, you know, higher-pitched even. They lack the kind of uh Ursine utterances of Jimmy James Het. And, um, you know, Cal Morris was a giant influence on James. There was something in Rolling Stone. Um, that basically were sort of like, you know, top 100 singers and that sort of thing. But what they did that was quite cool was, within the list itself, there were like mini lists from famous singers who mm-hmm. could just rank their own. Um, so James nominated 20 singers, and Cal was number 17 on his list, which is just an awesome inclusion. What an obscure inclusion. I mean, James is such a connoisseur of this type of music, right?
4: He's a champion for filth. In music. <laughs> yes. like bands like Exodus, bands like Discharge, he's always at the forefront. He's like, but what about them? Yeah. What about Creator? He's always there to throw another band's yeah. hat in the ring. Whereas, as I was growing up as a Metallica fan, I always seen Lars at the forefront pulling away from other musicians. Like, never mind them, what about this? Mm-hmm. Whereas James was always more given. And I've written down in my notes, in parentheses here, very stock vocals from James, definitely Bob Rock. Right. Because stock is how it was described in Some Kind of Monster oh, yeah. as when it was just it's very James the delivery on this song It's exactly what Hetfield would sound like if he was in Discharge you could literally slot him right in yeah yeah I mean the way, the way he there. says hey!
0: Like the the way the yeah. way he enunciates certain things. And similar to Free Speech for the Dumb, and I need to listen to more discharge. Um, you know, I'm really enjoying what I'm hearing from the band, and everyone seems to point to um their second album, Hear Nothing, See Nothing, Say Nothing, from nineteen eighty-two as kind of a you know seminal kind of British classic or just overall classic. Um, but there's not many lyrics in the song. So if we look at Free Speech for the Dumb. It's literally free speech, free speech for the dumb, said over and over again, mantra-esque. And the lyrics for The More I See are very simple. From where I stand, pain, suffering, and misery, the more I see, the more I see, the less, the less I believe. From where I stand, I see, hate, violence, and war. The more I see, the more I see, the less, the less I believe. And I guess that simplicity of diction is kind of a canvas for James to just kind of, you know, be James, really. He really puts his own character into the track.
4: Yeah, he gives each syllable its own personality to a point mm-hmm. when he covers a song like he'll enunciate and he'll force words that yeah. Maybe didn't have the inflection on the original But he'll make them his mm-hmm. and you don't need a lot of lyrics and music like that when you listen to the original because the song itself kind of is the message. They're just words being barked. Nobody really paid attention to the words You don't sing words like that when you're jumping up and down head mm-hmm. to toe and leather somewhere, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you're spitting on the band you go to see as a form of affection. You're not going to stop and sing their lyrics at them.
0: (laughs) And, you know, uh, philosophically as well, uh, in terms of the lyrics, it fits into that, you know, discharge punk viewpoint, really. Yeah,
4: very anarcho. Yeah, the more
0: more you sort of witness your surroundings, the more you realise they can't be trusted. All you see is pain, suffering and misery. And just, just the way James sort of commands this out there is absolutely terrific. And it's constantly, you know, it's, it's, it's like a magnet in orbit of kind of uh, a kind of mother, um, you know, magnetism there, a mother attraction. Like, it's constantly coming back to that riff, isn't it? And it's like, when you have a money riff like this, I just want to keep hearing it. I just love the sound of the band playing it. Oh, man, it's just relentless.
4: It's it's probably my favourite cover of the Metallica I've done. It's, it's definitely the up
0: wait. there. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely
4: wait, up there. By Killing Joke was my favourite for a while when I was younger. I very much liked Sabra Kadabra as well. Yep. I think this is probably my favourite. The more you, I listen to it yeah. and the more I get into it, I appreciate this a little bit more.
0: I mean, the more I see, the more I listen, yeah, the more I believe. I, I, I'm i with you. I am actually with you. I think the more I see is definitely up there. Um, There's other ones that I really, really enjoy, like Free Speech, again, The Discharge Ring. I really like The Merciful Fate medley i think that's fantastic but 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 but, yeah i think it trumps it trumps like whiskey and astronomy and you know lover man yeah yeah i like well i'm the problem is i'm just i'm a bleeding heart thin lizzy fan so i just prefer the original
4: my old man was a big thin lizzy fan Mm. which immediately i disliked thin lizzy (laughs) because of this rolling stones as well i was having none of that
0: yeah i think the rolling stones are one of the most overrated bands of all time
4: yeah trash, they're yeah, garbage. They're awful. they're awful.
0: I don't give a fuck about your twelve-bar blues and your Telecasters. Write something interesting. Like it's just the same yeah. old
4: crap. Exactly what it is is they're playing what would be a jam session, which in the fifties was impressive to yeah. see a guy dance and sing over a jam. But it's two thousand and nineteen. Get a fucking job. <laughs> Do something.
0: Yeah, I, I like I like the interplay of the guitars. I, I remember Keith Richards being interviewed, oddly enough, by Chris Evans in the late Stop 90s. It. I know, fuck Chris Evans, despise Chris Evans. I mean, American listeners probably won't know. We're not talking about Captain America, we're talking about this, yeah, this ferret-faced
4: kind of... Yeah, colonial... a ginger ferret that yeah. replaced the old racist on top here. <laughs> yeah. <So he'd laughs> the next to from Friends looking... Yeah, me, yeah, Matt
0: LeBlanc. Yeah, what the fuck? Yeah. Um. And uh, Keith was talking about them and him and Ronnie Wood, and he was like, "Look, I'm I'm not the best guitar player in the world, but when we're together, we're better than anyone." And it's kind of like I don't really agree with, him, but like you know, I like the sort of the lines interweaving and stuff. But 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 yeah, I, I agree. Fuck Rolling Stones. Um, Lizzy are great. And um, talking about solo guitar playing, then what di- what this differs from the discharge thing is the discharge thing has those breaks. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of like Seek and Destroy, you know, the chords play and then Kirk can fill the spaces. In the original, there isn't a guitar solo, which kind of makes sense for the time. In this one, you know, Kirk is playing here, kind of flexing out. Like, what, what, what do you make of these moments in the song?
4: I mean, they, they hold it together in a, a weird way because, like you said, it's not in the original, hmm. but the structure and the rhythm of the riff, although it sounds identical, if you listen to the Metallica one, it's kind of whirling it's very circular round and round and round it keeps going and i think the solo fits because of that yeah it does because you're it, building and building and building like a washing machine spinning and all of a sudden it drains and there's nothing there and the solo comes in, and you're like oh didn't expect that yeah I'll it's, have some of that it's cool it's cool because
0: yeah I, I did listen to the original anticipating some sort of lead break but of course you know this was the late 70s or whatever and, yeah, and that no was a
4: solos and punk yeah yeah
0: None at all, none at all.
4: Um so, maybe. Yeah,
0: yeah, perhaps. And then you, I mean, then you get into sort of, um, you know, post-punk ideas where a guitar mm-hmm. solo was a very angular thing, a very obtuse thing. You know, it certainly wasn't That's a... the man. Yeah, it certainly there's wasn't so- a virtuosic, stuff like television and, and Public uh, Image Limited and stuff like that. But um, but yeah, the guitar solo's fine, you know, Kirk is kind of kind of doing his thing here. Now, um, the song, interestingly, has never been played live, and there's quite a few numbers off Garage Inc. that haven't been turned out. But there is live footage of them jamming on it that I found online, literally just for one on air, them playing at Leeds Festival 2015. And I don't know why they don't bring this out more in the cover slot, like as a bread fan or something like it would connect to a crowd on a visceral level, I think.
4: I think it would be ideal to open their encore, like as yeah. they came back out the more I've uh-huh. It's a very good song. And like I said earlier, I think it's everything that you could want from Metallica covering a track. You're learning about a new band. You're hearing a different sound. You're hearing what they appreciated, but they're doing it in the most Metallica way humanly possible interestingly yeah. about the time frame though like you said earlier about bob rock this falls between there's this and then i believe the only thing that was released that i said this was four leaf clover no leaf clover no, before yeah. saint anger
2: mm-hmm.
4: so it falls in a very weird time the only thing that comes in between is i disappear yep yeah. which gives you an idea where the band were at the time they were very like fractured you had the whole napster thing going on they just cut their hair they came out with pictures of mascara on and all the fans oh, yeah. were like what's this why is he wearing a velvet shirt and then they came back with this and it was like all right they're still there you know it's still the same band there's nothing changed and it's on with business and business picked up for certain on this whole album start to finish
0: So this is the last track um, on the first disc, and it's interesting you talk about the legacy of who the band were, because there are still, I mean, there's one misstep in this song, and it's not to be blamed for discharge in my eyes. So the song ends, the song is 4 minutes 49, but the song for all intents and purposes ends at 3 minutes 23. There's a period of silence, there's a short sort of Laugh, it's kind of not clear what it is. According to Wikipedia, that's a short segment of a Robin Trower song, um, called Bridge of Size. Robin Trower's one of my like sort of black holes. I know he's a like English guitar hero, um, it was in like a power trio. I think they're called Procol Harum, but but I know that Kirk's down with him Shit. and uh, you know James and all that. I'm sure he was in that sort of thing. And then we get into what I can only really deem as, like, reload posturing. I, I, yeah, I'm it's not... like
4: an outro breakdown. Yeah,
0: it's like an outro bluesy kind of thing. Kirk wanking off. It's quite indulgent. I don't know. It kind of, to me personally, and I, I know you're a load reload guy. and I know everyone listening, most people are, whatever. But um, it kind of undermines the run and gun intention of the original.
4: I can understand that, because like, you want the cover to be the cover. Hmm. But at the same time, if you take the, the juxtaposition of the two bands, see, like this like they were crust. That's what they were. They were crust. That's pump. right, yeah. Just dry, like, flavorless filth. <laughs> and then you've got Metallica, who are like this red-hot, fresh-out-the-oven apple, and together they make the apple pie, because you've got this dry crust, and you've got just... Full-on Americana is just mm-hmm. Kirk wanking his fretboard, being Kirk. And I think it meshes together well. Yeah, yeah. Cause you can't have an apple pie without the fruit. You need something there that's a little bit sauce, you know? You need something a little bit saucy.
0: No, I understand that, and you know it's interesting that they went with that, and you know it's it's a kind of false ending. It's ending the first disc. It's a it's a playful sort of thing. Perhaps if this song was you know earlier on in the track listing, it wouldn't have made as much sense. But you know it's them sort of messing with those ideas. Just going on their Spotify discharge, which is you know not necessarily the best um, temperature check, especially for older bands. (laughs) But they've got thirty eight thousand monthly listeners, which is quite decent, you know, and. um, Eh? yeah the more i see isn't actually on spotify the discharge version because it was a single it wasn't on an album but apparently the discharge are playing london next
4: saturday she's gonna say that and they're playing glasgow uh, oh. and leeds one of them within a week a week tomorrow on the 16th they're so playing, playing leeds. Leeds?
0: they're playing leeds in two days the
4: boom town or whatever a,
0: pro- a temple of boom where where loads of um and, battle cool. up events
4: are and uh the one in london i believe is that is it the Armisham arms that's and they're right. playing glasgow as well i just yeah. spotted that yeah
0: that's cool i not
4: oh they're playing where? Bir, they're
0: playing birmingham in april actually i might go see them in april that's pretty you cool. should
4: see them in birmingham because yeah. that's where they're going to flourish because they're just a little band from england bands yeah. like Ian, well extreme noise terror fucking champions at Ipswich. like little band from epswich phenomenal forceful oh they're forceful playing band. they're
0: playing with them in birmingham April twentieth. You should see them. Yeah, I'm. I'm definitely going to go. I yeah, Terror Absolution are playing. Doctor and the Crippens are playing. I mean, yeah, they looks like they're doing a big uh, UK tour soon. They're playing uh, the Camden Rocks. I mean, I mean, shout out Discharge. It's so fucking they're, cool that course. they're still going. Like you know, as get- recently as
4: 2017, James yeah. had threw the name in the hat again, saying they were one of the most important bands, and that in, they, I in 2017 it he said that. Yeah, the discussion oh. was what do you think of the big four? And the guy from Exodus said, I think it should be the big seven and James was like, Yeah, you creator and discharge.
2: Discharge.
4: Because we need them without discharge and Exodus, there is no Motorhead, there is mm-hmm. no Metallica. Although in saying that Diamond Head were enough of an influence on Lars that he was going to succeed regardless of what he did. Yeah. Like, yeah. if you listen to early interviews with Lars, he's all about Diamond Head. Like yeah. he is in with that band.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely, and uh, Blitzkrieg as well, um, you know, him and Brian Ross were in cahoots, they were talking a lot as well, and that's another one of their major singles early on. But, I mean, you know, let us know down below what you think about the more I see, I think it's quite clear that both me and Dave are huge fucking fans of this song, and I I, I just think it's terrific, I, I like the fact on Garage Inc. that they spread their wings a little bit, you know, Whiskey and Man are definitely going outside that Metallica
4: it's remit. Gone. What's up? I said Tuesday's gone is on that. Tuesday gone, album, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Tuesday's gone with Jerry Cantrell um live edition there Quipo as well.
4: Lose. But let's up banjo. Sorry. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, last thing they did with Jason was this, and I disappear. This is yes. the last album that Jason Newstead appeared on. That's
0: right. That's right. It's yeah. very
4: very sad.
0: It Good. is sad.
4: Jason Newstead is the most important part of Metallica, as we're all aware. <laughs> of
0: course. I think when we were going to do a Jason episode ages ago, we need to pick that up it's again. it
4: been nine hours long.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like,
4: much love. And huge, huge, I-
0: huge love to Jason. And one of the things that we've mentioned in of Metallica before, I don't know if we've spoken about this, Dave, but um, I don't know if you remember the, um, the Rockstar Supernova reality show that Jason was involved in. Was he on that? He was on that So so the first season Was in excess
4: That's right
0: Yeah That was uh, on we, Sky Yeah I never actually Watched the first season But the second season I did So the second season Was the band Was called Supernova Which is a terrible Sort of pre-manufactured name It was Tommy Lee on drums Gilby Clark on rhythm guitar and lead guitar, you know, of GNR fame, whatever. And Jason fucking Newstead on bass. And I want to go back. They're all on YouTube. There's like 25 episodes. It's proper like American Idol shit with Dave Navarro in the Ryan Seacrest role. And, okay. you know, it's that's, that's what Jason kind of did after Echo, Brain and Metallica. He did, uh, joined a band with Tommy Lee and Gilby Clark. And, yeah, can... um.
4: Trailer in my head. You're right. He you had the. It was like a like chin length curly bob, like the Jason afro, but yeah. center parted. <laughs> I can still see the trailer in my head. That you mention it.
0: So uh, um, I- on the Jason Her- episode, we will. We, you know, we'll, we'll go back and talk about that, and talk about the Chop House. And Jason did this album as well. I did an episode of the show about a year ago where I did, like, Metallica's guest appearances on albums. And I did, like, 40 things. And he appeared on this album with, like, these two virtuoso school children. They're, like, literally in primary school and they sung about sports. And they sounded like the Moldy Peaches. They're all, like, eternal. And that was, like, the first thing he laid base on, I think, after Metallica. I can't remember what they were called. I'll have to post that down below. But, you know, the important thing is Discharge. And Metallica, yes. and you know the fact that they ended the first disc on this song. And you know what? Yeah, I think I'm going to say I think the more I see, is my favourite song on the first disc of Garage Inc. It's it's just such a pummeling triumph.
4: I think the it speaker itself, when Discharge open the album, the first disc, and close it exactly. Unless you know everything you need to know about that band, if you're a Metallica fan and you're interested in the history of the band and where they come from, listen to that album. Listen to Garage Inc and then seek out something else, seek out the other bands.
0: And I I, I should say as well, I like when the song pairs down to the bass that it opens with. And again, James is just playing with the lyrics that we established earlier. There's nothing different, but it reminds me a little bit of Bad Seed, The way it has that kind of speakerphone, you know, ringleader aspect that James is sort of hanging the lines a little longer. I I often criticise rock songs on this podcast when they run out of ideas in the bridge and they'll just repeat the main riff but the bass line and bring it all down before bringing it back up. But I think in this song it really works in its favour.
4: Oh yes, like a a broken clock, twice a day you're going to be right. Like There could be a million (laughs) songs like that that sound garbage, but... Luckily for Metallica, when they do it, they do it properly. You know, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. they 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 do, it they do
4: every time.